Gospel of Mark. And it happened that he was passing through the sown fields during the Sabbaths, and his learners began to be making their way, plucking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See, why are they doing what's not allowable during the Sabbaths? And he says to them, Didn't you ever read what David did when he had need and he hungered, he along with those with him? how he entered into the house of God at the time of Abiathar, a chief priest, and ate the loaves of presentation, which is not allowable to eat except for the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him. And he was saying to them, The Sabbath was made because of man, not man because of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. That was a reading from the Gospel of Mark. And now a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. In that time, the Jesus went through the sown fields on the Sabbaths. But his learners hungered, and they began to be plucking heads of grain and to be eating them. But the Pharisees, after they saw, said to him, Look, your learners are doing what's not allowable to be doing during a Sabbath. But he said to them, Didn't you read what David did when he hungered and those with him? how he entered into the house of God, and they ate the loaves of presentation, which it wasn't allowable for him to eat, nor for those with him, but only for the priests. Or didn't you read in the law that on the Sabbaths the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you'd known what this is, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That was a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. There was once a country in Africa called Southern Rhodesia, that is Zimbabwe now. It was originally a British colony that declared independence, kind of, when it looked as if the British were getting ready to decolonize and to allow the majority black population to play the decisive role in the new state's government. The white population resisted this, and that set off a period of armed conflict, which ultimately did not go well for them, and eventually many of them emigrated to Great Britain, where they became known as the Wenwees, because they were nostalgic about their time in Rhodesia, and they would bore everyone with tales about it. You know, when we were fighting the Bush War, wearing Chuck Taylors and coochie cutters, when we were ruling over the world's largest anachronism. So those are the Wenwees, and their story has led me to bestow a similar title on the author of Matthew's Gospel. The author of the Gospel of Matthew is not a Wenwee, 
but a why don't we? The traditional view of the Gospel of Matthew is that it was written in a church community that knew and was heavily familiar with Mark's Gospel. And they found Mark's Gospel to be useful in their teaching, but over time, they supposedly came to feel that it wasn't meeting their needs anymore, and so they created the Gospel of Matthew as a kind of enhanced or expanded edition of Mark. Some of the more obvious errors in Mark were corrected. The wording was changed in some places, but above all, extra material and supplemental traditions about Jesus were added. And these added extra traditions are generally thought to be independent and going back to original sources and oral tradition, the authentic lived experience of Jesus' companions, you know, all that same nonsense we always hear all the time. And that's the traditional view. But today I'm presenting an alternative view, which is that there is in fact Nothing preventing us from maintaining that Matthew's gospel was written very soon after Mark, and possibly by a member of Mark's own community. The story of how Matthew was written is not that Mark's gospel had to bake in the oven for ten years, and someone took it out and gave it like a glazing of extra traditions. Instead, and as the great radical critic J.V.M. Sturdy said, Matthew is in fact the revisionist anti-gospel of Mark. It was written by a breakaway member of Mark's church, and thus Matthew was written by a why don't we? You know, why don't we not forget that we were originally sent only to preach to the lost sheep of Israel, just like it says in our big book of unsourced Jesus quotes. Why don't we make sure that Jesus says that in the gospel too? On that note, why don't we go ahead and keep Jesus out of pagan territory when he's performing his miracles, for Christ's sake? Why don't we establish a clear friggin' ethic here? We're supposed to be Jews. Mark seems to forget that fact. He's half a heretic. The ethic should be that Jesus Christ revealed in himself the fulfillment of the law, and he taught that we obey the law when we perform righteous acts out of the goodness of our heart and understand ourselves to be doing that on a spiritual and moral level, instead of blindly following the ridiculous bylaws of the legalizing rabbis. And while we're at it, Mark's Jesus, in general, makes us look kind of shady. He's supposed to be the son of God, but he appears out of nowhere, and we're found to be the butt of jokes when we preach our faith. We're getting all sorts of profane, shouted questions about our Savior's providence. I mean, the actual reason that Mark's Jesus appears out of nowhere is because he's an artificial composite construct, but let's at least come up with a birth story for him, if nothing else. I mean, why don't we say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Take a page out of the Phantom Menace playbook. And why don't we make it look like that was predicted by Old Testament scripture, that tastes better going down? Why don't we explain the mysterious term Nazarene that's part of his title? I mean, we don't know what it means. It's, it's one of the many names that our sect used to call itself. Uh, it would make sense that it would mean of Nazareth, you know, that small town in Galilee that's recently been settled again. Why not? While we're at it, why don't we correct the wording of these damn Septuagint quotes? Again, we're supposed to be Jews. What, do we not know our own scriptures now? Why don't we put the name of Moses before the name of Elijah in the Transfiguration story? Why don't we get rid of the stupid statement that Jesus had to go 250 miles out of his way to get to Decapolis? Another thing, Mark says that Jesus went to a place called Dalmanutha. Why don't we change that to a place that uh, actually exists? 
And there's a famous town somewhere in that region. It's called Magdala, or is it Magadan? Let's change it to that. In Mark, the crowd calls Jesus the carpenter. Uh, why don't we go ahead and change that to carpenter's son? I mean, we get why Mark said Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus is a rabbi in all but name. He teaches authoritatively, and a rabbi is expected to practice a trade. So Mark just arbitrarily assigned Jesus the trade of carpenter. But do we really want the Son of God fixing tables? I mean, even if he's a total genius at it, like even if he does something exceptional with his carpentry, like invent a high table so you don't have to recline while eating. So let's change it to Carpenter's Son. And by changing it to that, we get the opportunity for a decent pun, since tecton can also mean creator, hence the creator's son. Do we really have to have our heroes James and John asking Jesus to sit at his left and right? They come across like the two lesser beach boys in that story. Why don't we have their dumbass mom ask the question on their behalf instead? Mark says that Peter rebuked Jesus. Why don't we specify what he actually said so that the audience is clear that it wasn't anything too derogatory? And while we're at it, why don't we not have Peter call Jesus rabbi, since we're supposed to take pride in not using the term rabbi? Let's instead have Peter call him Lord. Have Judas stick with calling him rabbi. And above all, why don't we return to our roots? Our roots in the miracle-working sect of wandering prophets and healers that traces its lineage back to the legendary disciples of the legendary founder, the very sect that infiltrated Mark's church and the very sect that Mark's gospel was written against. The Gospel of Matthew is an immediate response to the Gospel of Mark, but not a direct response, not a polemic. Matthew rather intends to supersede Mark by swallowing it whole. We must always remember that the author of Matthew really doesn't know much more about Jesus than the author of Mark did. What he does know, he's getting from a book of quotes and silly little miracle stories. And what he's not getting from that, he's making up. And make no mistake, what the author of Matthew adds to his sources is nothing more than a light sprinkling. What Matthew adds is mostly ethical statements and freestanding parables and miracle vignettes. In fact, a good way to describe Matthew's writing process is that he possessed Mark's sources and simply added back in all the things that Mark left out. And we'll talk about this again a bit later when we discuss the synoptic problem, but there's a lost source of Jesus material that's commonly known as Q. And while Matthew uses Mark as a framework, he takes thousands of words from this Q source and simply pads his gospel with them, often after editing them somewhat. And that's what Matthew does, but the thing is, Mark was also aware of Q. I mean, that's how he knew about the baptism story, about the temptation story. That's how he knew that Jesus said, tear out your right eye if it makes you stumble. That's how he knew that Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife commits adultery. That's how he knew what marching orders Jesus gave to the twelve. That's how he knew that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being in league with demons. Whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me isn't worthy of me. That's a Q quote. It's also in the Gospel of Mark. And Matthew has just taken up the Q source and added the rest of it back in. And here's what's really going to bake your noodle later. The simplest explanation as to why Mark left out so many Q quotes is not only that Q was one of the main books used by his opponents, but also he probably did not believe that these quotes really went back to a historical Jesus. 
In fact, in my paradigm, there's a not insignificant chance that the stories and the sayings and the miracles included in Q went back not to Jesus, but to John the Baptist, whom the miracle worker sect originally revered. And Matthew represents this miracle worker sect now in its later days. It's a spiritualizing Judaism, heavily infused with Gnostic beliefs, but still fundamentally particularist in its outlook. And that's what Matthew represents. And that would be the later basis of the early Catholic Church, along with the reverence for Peter and everything else. What Matthew did was take the Gospel of Mark and rewrite it from a tendency standpoint and bring it into a more populous and urbanized region. Why don't we make sure that we have the last word? And when new converts come to our religion, they'll be initiated to our version of the faith. The version that says, by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. And so we see that we can afford to very much simplify the conventional view of Matthew. Just because it's one of the Gospels, and just because it's arguably the most prominent one, doesn't mean that we need to be especially reverent and come up with an elaborate backstory for how it came to be. To be sure, there are other factors. I mean, the author was a belligerent fellow with his back against the wall, to paraphrase the movie Drive, and he was also dealing with the rabbis, and he was dealing with Paul's religion, but fundamentally... He was also just a guy who had two books open in front of him while he was writing. And we have one of those two books. So we're just about ready to meet him on the level plane. And to get a sense of how Matthew operated, we can go back to our opening reading. The famous story about the disciples picking the heads of grain. The tale is borrowed from Mark's gospel, but the only places where Matthew follows Mark's wording exactly is where he says that they went through the sown fields on the Sabbaths. Other than that, he also follows Mark exactly when he says how he entered into the house of God and they ate the loaves of presentation. Let's look now at the changes that Matthew made. Now, Mark sets the story by indicating that it happened one day that Jesus was passing through the fields. Now, this is the part in Matthew's gospel in general where he's decided to say, for some reason, forget Mark's order, and he moved this Mark story way out of its original place and arranged it here because it fit his theme better. And so Matthew begins his editing already in introducing the story. Instead of saying, it happened one day, why don't we say it happened at that time? By the way, on this, there's a website called understandchristianity.com. I'm not necessarily criticizing it. I mean, it's whatever, but you ought to look at this map they have on their page called Chronology of Jesus's Life and Ministry. And it draws from all four Gospels and tries to plot the points where certain things happened. And when you look at this thing, you'd think it was rather taken from the Gospel of Jackson Pollock. I mean, it's a chaos of dots and they're numbered. And when you trace them out, you can quickly see that they don't follow any kind of logical order. And Matthew is trying to correct for that already. He tries to group different events together by placing them all at that time and in that place. The next thing, Mark says that they were moving through the fields and plucking the heads of grain. Matthew doesn't like this. Why don't we specify that they weren't only plucking the grain, but eating it? Uh, We don't want to make them out to be vandals. Plus, we're about to make a rabbinic argument that they were allowed to break the Sabbath because they were in need. By the way, this passage about the heads of grain is one which believers in the rebel Jesus paradigm put forth as evidence, the idea that Jesus and his disciples were anti-Roman freedom fighters, because this story makes them sound like they're on the run. 
Uh, I think that's a rather forced reading. Like, um, have you heard of gleaning? But at this point in Born in the Second Century, you can probably guess what I think about the rebel Jesus paradigm. Mark says, why are they doing what's not allowable on the Sabbaths? Why don't we change that to, why are they doing what's not allowable on the Sabbath? Mark says that David went in and ate the showbread in the time of Abiathar, the chief priest. Why don't we not say that? Because it's not true. Uh, Did Mark even bother to read the Bible? Abiathar's father was chief priest in that story in 1 Samuel. And that's not something Mark would have had to guess because David dialogues with the chief priest in the story. So there's no excuse for this. Why don't we cut that? And then maybe two millennia from now, Bart Ehrman won't lose his faith. And Mark has Jesus silence the Pharisees by bringing up this story. But why don't we add something? Why don't we have Jesus cite a second scripture quote from another part of the Bible, kind of like our rivals, the rabbis, would do, and make it a halakhic argument based on the Torah from the book of Numbers. The priests in the temple are required to make certain sacrifices, and they have to do so even if this falls on the Sabbath. And you know, why don't we have Jesus make another argument that our contemporaries, the rabbis, the post-70 AD rabbis, would make? A so-called light and heavy argument. Even the priests in the temple are allowed to break the Sabbath, but something greater than the temple is here. And why don't we underline that with a scripture quote, a favorite verse of one of our great heroes, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, a Galilean who supposedly was active during the Roman-Jewish war, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, from the book of Hosea. And lastly, when finishing the story, why don't we finally circle back to that Mark quote, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Because by now, we've made our point. We've added what we needed to add. We can now end this story at the place where Mark ended it. By the way, there's another thing from Mark's story here that isn't in Matthew. The part about the Sabbath being made for man and not the other way around. It's not in Matthew, but that is most likely because Matthew was in fact copying from an edition of Mark that lacked it. That sentence... And there are a handful of other examples like that in Matthew, but that's why we didn't really discuss it. But we could do this all day. I had even planned to go on and cover the rest of this chapter in Matthew, but the hour's waning. In the book Primary Colors, which is about a political campaign, one of the things the campaign does is they take an opponent's negative ad and then air it in its entirety, but then they pull back the camera. And what you then see is their candidate. And he's found to be watching his opponent's negative ad on TV. And for the rest of the time, he proceeds to refute that negative ad. But he ends on a positive note. So when he's finished, you've forgotten the original criticism and negativity that you saw directed against him at the beginning. And I think this is a decent analogy for Matthew's gospel. The author wants to co-opt and counter this text that he's dealing with. But that's not all he wants to do with it. He also has a positive message, by which I mean... He has his own program to fulfill. It's not just polemic that Matthew is doing. And we'll explore that today. But what we'll also see is that Matthew's setting is not distinctly different than Mark's. But before we begin, notice what has been conspicuously absent from our discussion. It is any sense that Matthew, or Mark for that matter, are setting out to faithfully record the words and deeds of a historical man. Instead, We encounter the same thing we always do in the New Testament books, tendency writing. And Jesus and his words and his deeds and his character are found to be merely incidental. 
Just like what John Cusack said in the movie, it wasn't long before Jesus Christ became just another puppet lying next to Matthew's work table. You're listening to Born in the Second Century, and it's now 5 p.m. on January 5th, 2022. This is episode 19 of the Christianity show that's always ready to rumble. Hosted by Chris Palmero, the music for today's broadcast was provided by the recording group Pompey Gray. I've been listening to a lot of conservative Christian podcasts lately, and may I ask, Are Christian podcasters required to discuss football at the beginning of each show? I swear, I've heard something like this eight times in the past week. Was this some kind of mandate? Was this one of like Martin Luther's 95 theses that you had to talk about football before your Bible program? I could see that being a 95 thesis. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that like football is bad or anything, but seriously, have some discipline to stay on topic, especially if you're doing an interview podcast that's only 20 minutes long. I know that some people have listened very carefully to this show. Have I ever gone off topic for more than a minute? I mean, it could be argued that I'm going off topic now, but damn. Guess I just care more about Christianity than these guys do. I mean, I thought we were supposed to be talking about things like Jesus and God and the Bible. Instead, you turn it on and the first thing you hear is, Tigers are playing tonight. I never miss a game. I would ask that you rate Born in the Second Century on your podcast platform, and if you have time, write a review. Ideally, you would support the Patreon at patreon.com slash bornInTheSecondCentury. Last month, we released the lost episode one of Born in the Second Century as a bonus show. For January of 2022, we're going to have a little reading series. We're going to look at some short passages from an apologetics book called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels and respond to its arguments. This is one of those apologetics books that tries to be all scientific and that, so you better give me the insurance because I am going to knock the hell out of this thing. So that's this month, and we want to welcome our newest supporters. Brandon has brought to completion this act of grace on his part. Uh, There's also another new supporter, but they have a unique username, and I try not to dox people with these shoutouts, so thank you. You know who you are. Oh, and, uh... Your service is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Thanks again to the Apostle Paul for the many ways of expressing thanks that he included in 2 Corinthians. We have quoted from him 14 times, and we still haven't even halfway exhausted them. Now, it looks like the main show will start moving to a monthly release instead of every three weeks, but it'll be a slightly longer show. I'm moving it above two hours. I don't care what anyone says. I keep having to cut too many things to get it under two, but I'll make up for the longer release schedule with the imminent launch of two Patreon bonus shows per month. So for Patreon supporters at the adept level, you'll be effectively getting three shows per month. With this shift in the schedule, I want to make sure that the quality standards are being met because there's a lot of reading that has to go into this. So much so, in fact, that I feel that someone needs to be sued over it. Just can't really figure out who that would be at the moment. Also, look out for the Born in the Second Century website and other social media sites that we are releasing with the help of top supporter Danielle. Before we begin, I want to talk about something I mentioned last time on the death of Jesus. 
I said that I've seen the death of Jesus placed by theologians in every year between 29 AD and 36 AD. Now, strictly speaking, the date of Jesus' death should be easy to calculate if we were following the sources that say that he was crucified on Friday, Nisan 14, because Passover is a movable feast. It's based on the lunar calendar. So you're actually quite limited in the range of possible dates. The problem is, of course, that the precise date of the crucifixion is one of the many things that mainstream theologians arbitrarily decide not to take seriously in the Gospels. Yeah, they're hip to the symbolism that the Gospel authors were apparently using, so this is one of the arbitrary places where we apparently can't trust the Gospels. So Jesus could have died on any old day, and it was later Christian tradition that had it take place during Passover. Well, the theologian chicanery aside, I wanted to update the range of dates for Jesus' death with a theory from the eminent Christian scholar Origen, writing in the 3rd century AD. He says that Jesus died 42 years before the temple was destroyed, which would put the crucifixion at a cool 28 AD. So we can add 28 AD as another possible date of Jesus' death. I was also poking around recently online, and I saw an article defending 27 AD. Now, to use the arguments of the apologists, Origen was much closer in time to the life of Jesus than we modern people are, so we ought to take him seriously, right? Maybe he knows something we don't. Of course, if you follow that logic, you would also have to believe someone like Irenaeus, who said that Jesus was crucified at age 50 during the reign of the emperor Claudius. We continue with the Bright in the Corners mini-series in which we investigate the traditional arguments for the dating of each New Testament book, and today we're going to discuss the Gospel of Matthew. And as we did with Mark, and as we'll do for all the New Testament books, we're going to show what a flimsy foundation the conventional arguments for dating Matthew are built on. We're going to follow our usual formula where we investigate the arguments that the fundamentalists and the mainstream theologians have made as to the date of Matthew, and we'll comment on them. I'll provide my own views on the date of the book briefly, and then we'll discuss the authorship and attribution of the book. I want to preface this entire episode by saying that there's enough material in the Gospel of Matthew to do at least 200 episodes on it, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. In fact, I think it would be fair to say that 200 episodes is in fact a rather significant understatement. But with this mini-series, we're focusing on big picture, high-level, broad overview stuff, but before we begin... There's one thing I want to make clear on the dating of the Gospels that I want you to always remember. Prior to the Enlightenment, all these books were seen as having been written within a few years of Jesus' death. It was not even questioned. Then, beginning with the Enlightenment, theologians started to detect all these little hints and clues that the books may have been written later. And so, they've been forced to put them later. I mean, it looks like they know somewhat about the destruction of the temple, so let's put them after the destruction of the temple. But let's not put them too, too late. Let's keep putting them as close to the life of the disciples as we can still get away with, while still putting them late enough to account for things like this temple incident. And I'm reminded of that game, Mother 3, where at one point you encounter a bug sitting in the middle of the floor, and if you click on it, a dialogue pops up that says, This bug thinks it's hiding. And the theologians think they're being clever by paying lip service to these anachronisms, but still putting the Gospels as early as they possibly can. And they do this for a number of reasons, but a major reason is that they are well aware that if they put the Gospels too late, 
Then the entire initial millennium and a half of Christian history is shown to have been fundamentally misguided because it followed the testimony of the early church fathers who believed that Mark and Matthew and Luke all wrote during the very ancient days of the church. But the fact is, when you caught wind of these anachronisms, you should at that time have been open to putting these books in the second century. Instead, they did the opposite. They staked out their position for early dates, and now they find themselves exposed. And they have no choice but to be forced backward step by step by the inevitable counteroffensive. But the question we should be asking throughout today's episode is whether the traditional arguments on the date of Matthew can in fact be trusted. Back after this. So why don't we talk about the Gospel of Matthew, possibly the angriest religious text in the Western canon? If Matthew had a subtitle, it would be Weeping and Gnashing of Teeth. That phrase occurs something like 4,000 times in this book. Well, six times, but that's more than enough. Now, if we're following the logic of the New Testament scholars, then we should explore the theory that Matthew was written by a Hellenistic dentist because it has such a focus on teeth. I mean, think about it, because, you know, back in that time, not everyone necessarily knew how teeth worked. I mean, back then, not everyone knew that teeth gnashed, for example. You probably had to learn that from reading Aristotle or something. So Matthew was likely written by a trained specialist. I mean, yes, I'm joking, but this is only really a slight exaggeration of how New Testament scholars treat this material. And Matthew wanted to supersede Mark, like we talked about. Jesus is the new Moses. The role of Peter is highlighted. Matthew's church lionized Peter to some degree, unlike Mark's church, which seems to have had it out for him. He does bring in some additional scripture quotes, but those don't always come from the Septuagint. In fact, some of Matthew's Bible quotes have affinity with the Hebrew text, but Matthew in general is a much more self-consciously Jewish book than Mark. Matthew came out of a sect that was originally much closer to Judaism than Mark's group, and in point of fact, the poor fool who wrote this gospel is one of these guys who's laboring under the delusion that Christianity is Judaism. You know, it's like, this is the real Judaism. Now, he doesn't see the writing on the wall. It's like Dante in medieval Italy, who's writing these sad treatises about how he hopes that Henry of Luxembourg will come and bring order and peace to the empire, whereas that era of German domination over Italy is already about 50 years out of date by the time he's writing. Matthew was written in a place where there was an organized Christian church that had constant and sometimes violent contact with pagans and mainstream Jews. And it was written in Syria, that's pretty clear. Matthew goes out of his way to add Syria to the list of places where Jesus became known, Matthew going for a cheap pop there. Jesus heals the uh, bleeding woman. In Mark's gospel, she's called a Syrophoenician. In Matthew's gospel, she's called a Canaanite, which is what the Syrophoenicians actually called themselves. So Matthew is revising Mark, and he's bringing it to an urban environment, possibly Antioch, possibly Damascus, bringing Mark to the big city. 
know, think of Matthew as babe pig in the city, you know, even though the author brutally hates pigs. Another way to look at it is if Mark was written in Weehawken, Matthew was written in Manhattan. And, you know, from there, he's ready to continue the missionary work of his sect. Because, you know, how are you going to keep him down on the farm once they've seen Bartimaeus? One thing is that Matthew, like a lot of passages in the Quran, actually, appears to be affecting a pastoral outlook as a literary device, when in fact many of its stories, and especially its practical lessons, presuppose a city environment. And one example is the parable of the tares, and that's where Jesus tells a story about a farmer whose enemy sowed darnel in his field among the wheat. But darnel, which is a weed, was pretty much ubiquitous in wheat fields until the modern era, but the farmer's slaves are surprised that there's darnel among the wheat. And this is like a cook being surprised that onions turn brown in a frying pan over heat. Also, you can distinguish darnel from wheat while it's still growing. I mean, you wouldn't need to wait, like the story says, until both types of plants are fully grown to suddenly notice that half your field is made up of weeds. And these aren't even the only problems with this. And yes, I get that it's a parable about the last judgment and the darnel really symbolizes the wicked who are supposed to be weeded out by the angels. And of course, Jesus himself is made to very awkwardly explain all this. But my point is, Matthew was crafted at a writing table by a cleric. We're not to look for a salt-of-the-earth peasant from the Galilean countryside here. You know, on this, there's a guy I know who was going through the catechumen process to enter the Catholic Church. And he was told by one of the instructors that the parable of the lost sheep, where a shepherd has a hundred sheep, and he goes off to find the one that wandered away. He leaves the other 99 sheep behind. He said that Jesus meant for this parable not to make sense because, he said, it would better stick in the minds of the audience and it would help them absorb the lesson. So in other words, some guy who hears Jesus deliver this parable will then go home to his wife and say, hey, you'll never guess what this minimum historical marginal peasant preacher said earlier. This mofo said that a guy left 99 sheep alone to go find one that wandered off. Really makes you think. Uh, but this explanation has actually been put forth by theologians like John Dominic Crossan, for example. What they're doing is running interference for the gospel authors. I mean, the only reason that sheep are mentioned in general here to begin with is, like I said, they're affecting a kind of a rude pastoralism, primarily to give a kind of Old Testament feel to the proceedings. Matthew uses most of Mark's gospel, and he also uses another secondary source that we have called Q. The way that I tend to look at the gospels of Matthew and Luke is that Matthew had the Q source, Mark's gospel, and the sources of Mark's gospel. Whereas Luke, canonical Luke, had some version of Mark, he had the Q source, and he had some version of Matthew. We can talk about Q someday, but I think that the arguments against it are really a kind of a death by a thousand cuts. There's no slam dunk argument against it. And meanwhile, you have the bare fact that not only are Matthew and Luke sharing certain material in common word for word, but in most cases, Luke is seen to have a more ancient version of that material. Like Matthew has Jesus say, that's why I'm sending you prophets and teachers. Whereas the parallel passage in Luke it says, that's why the wisdom of God said, I'm sending you prophets and messengers, which concept when coming from the mouth of Jesus, it's like, uh, come again. 
But the Q material is Jewish wisdom preaching that was heavily influenced by Gnosis. And Matthew is by far the more tendentious editor of that material. Matthew is basically forcing Jesus into the mold of a Tanaitic rabbi. And he uses this Q material strictly in service of that end. Q has been coming under more and more scrutiny lately. It's being attacked more and more these days, especially by the more outspoken theologians, because it's a soft target, you know, being a lost book. And Q is sometimes portrayed by its critics as a being a sort of chaff that's scattered out by conservative theologians in order to mislead people into thinking that here we have yet another source that goes back to an authentic Jesus. But I don't hold to that. I don't mind the hypothesis that Q existed. I mean, to me, it doesn't indicate a historical Jesus. As, as I said, it was likely used by a miracle-working sect that originally revered John the Baptist. I mean, of course, there could still have been a Q with just everything in it made up. But speaking of Matthew's sources, there's material that Matthew sprinkles throughout the gospel that doesn't come from Mark or Q. And this is Matthew's special material. It includes mostly sayings and parables, like I talked about earlier. Now, where I draw the line on positing lost written sources is with things like this Matthew special material. Theologians like Bart Ehrman believe that this special material comes from another lost written source, which they designate M. Now, it's possible that there was an M source, but this is one of those cases where I do feel that theologians are trying to multiply their written sources in order to authenticate a historical Jesus. Because with Q, you can not only see where Matthew and Luke made changes to a common source, but if you look at the work of scholars like Alan Garrow, it appears that Q was used in other secondary Christian writings as well. So there's more tangible indication that it existed. But this special material, this M stuff, on the other hand, I am more or less prepared to argue that Matthew made it all up. Because for one thing, almost all of it consists of clarifying statements that are put after Mark material or after Q material to explain them further. But I mentioned Bart Ehrman. He said in an interview that the burden of proof is on you if you're one of those people who think that Matthew just invented the special material himself. The burden of proof is on you to demonstrate that and not that he instead used a lost written M source. And he says that this is because Matthew clearly used sources everywhere else, like he used Mark and he used Q. So to, to Bart Ehrman, it stands to reason that for his unique material, he also used a source. And it's like, I hate to sound like the children arguing with each other in the marketplace, but actually the burden of proof is on those who claim that Matthew got his special material from a written source. Because if he did use a written source for his special material, we are then found to be begging the question when it comes to the authorship of this gospel. Namely, who was Matthew? Who was the author? I mean, was he just an empty vessel? Was he just a redactor, an arranger of sources? I mean, did he come up with nothing on his own? But that's not how these books were written. These are tendency writings. The authors had a specific purpose, and they used existing material, but they freely edited and commented on it, and that process all takes place at the writing table. And you need look no further than our opening reading from today to see that Matthew most likely made up all this extra material. So we need to get away from the assumption that Mark's gospel had to spread through the Mediterranean, and communities of Christians everywhere uh, reflected deeply on it, and then we get a studied response decades later using independent sources. Matthew could have been just a member of Mark's immediate audience. And that, in fact, would explain his tendency. 
which is that he is closer to that miracle-working sect than Mark was. For example, he adds extra instructions about healing and exercising demons to the mission charge that Jesus gives the apostles. And whenever he has the opportunity to emphasize Jesus in his capacity as a healer, he does. He also makes heavy use of the spiritualizing Jewish source that Mark was trying to counter. And not only that, but Matthew appears to have access to Mark's own sources. I mean, most notably, he seems to know the exact problem that Mark was trying to avoid in his placement of the passion narrative in time. Another thing is that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the time he spends there is very disjointed in the Gospel of Mark as compared to Matthew. It looks rather like Matthew is following the common source more closely. And above all, I think that Matthew best reveals himself in his deletion of the story of the strange exorcist from Mark. The disciple John says in Mark's gospel, We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And Jesus says, He who's not against us is for us. Matthew's not having that at all. He doesn't often delete material from Mark, but he deletes that part. Why? because it was most likely directed towards Matthew's own little sect or subgroup. Notice how the man in question is depicted as a miracle worker. So Mark may be trying to extend the olive branch there. Matthew swipes it down. He's got a Khmer Rouge mentality. Matthew has his own feelings towards Mark's church. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, apropos of absolutely nothing, don't throw your pearls before swine. Don't give what's holy to dogs. So that's Matthew and his sources. And now we have some sense of the tools that he used when he set out to write, and we have some idea of what his purpose was. So now we can talk about dates. And before moving on, I think that Matthew is the most effective of the four Gospels in the New Testament. It's certainly the only one I can really stand to read outside of the show. I mean, I spend so much time reading this Christian literature, but there's only really so much of it that I like reading. I mean, not to say that it's great, but... I like Jude. Uh, I think that the letter of Jude is the closest thing to a good piece of writing that the New Testament has. I like the letter to the Hebrews, but it kind of has the same problem that L. Ron Hubbard's stories do. Really would have benefited from a few editing passes. Other than that, 1 Corinthians, and that's it. I mean, 1 Corinthians, it's a complete mess, but I almost admire it for that. Like, one time I was on a bus in Washington, D.C., and it was 8 in the morning, And everyone on there was on their commute, except for this one drunk guy who was the only one talking. And he was doing yo mama jokes. And like, I still remember one of them. He said, yo mama's house is so small that you have to step outside just to change your mind. So I admire First Corinthians in the same way that I admire that guy. That makes sense. Now, just like last time, we're going to find our terminus dates. What's the earliest date Matthew could have been written? And what's the latest date? We're laying down that artillery fire, and it's going to be imprecise at first until we can zero in further. The first person to quote from the Gospel of Matthew by name is, as if I even had to say it, Irenaeus, the Catholic theologian writing in the 190s. When all this is over, I'm going to go back into the story of Irenaeus, because his writings and some of the things he says are highly suspicious. But the first thing that we find about Irenaeus' use of Matthew is that he quotes it infinitely more than he does Mark. One of the reasons that it's so hard to find the upper terminus date for Mark is because the church writers from that early period rarely quote from it. The opposite is the case with Matthew. They all quote Matthew, and Irenaeus is no exception. He quotes from Matthew about four trillion times. 
The great Christian scholar Benjamin Bacon said, In the second century, Matthew is always the gospel employed, unless the quotation wanted is not to be found in it. End quote. I think the reason these early mainstream Christians loved Matthew is because it effectively solves the main problem they were having at the time, which was to tie the Old and the New Testaments together and establish Christianity as a continuator of Judaism. And this was especially necessary in the first edition of the New Testament that we talked about in episode 17. The Old and New Testaments being bound together in this codex, a book like Matthew is very much on theme, where the author keeps going out of his way to explain exactly how events in the life of Jesus fulfilled the Jewish scriptures. And when Irenaeus quotes Matthew, that's generally what he's doing as well. There's no question that Irenaeus possessed what we now know as canonical Matthew. He not only knows a lot of the material that Matthew shares with Mark and Luke, but he also knows a lot of Matthew's special material. He knows the birth narrative, he knows the unique material that was added to the Sermon on the Mount, you know, things like, not one letter nor stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He knows the quote about the scribe who's trained himself for the kingdom of heaven. As we'll see, that quote is considered by many to be an autobiographical comment by the author of Matthew. He even knows the last line of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus tells the disciples to go forth and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's sometimes been seen as a secondary addition to the text. Now, if you remember last time, Irenaeus talked about the vision of the four creatures in heaven, and he said that Mark was symbolized by the eagle because of reasons. And he says that Matthew in this vision is symbolized by the man, which is the third of the four creatures. And he says that uh, that's because Matthew's gospel presents the humanity of Jesus and Jesus is depicted as a meek and humble and mild man throughout. That's great. Irenaeus would have been better advised to leave this whole vision metaphor on the cutting room floor, actually. He says that Matthew depicts Jesus as meek and mild. This is the same Jesus who thunders forth, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. I mean, Jesus is meek and mild to the extent that Emperor Norton was meek and mild, but Irenaeus clearly has canonical Matthew. There's no question. And just as he did with Mark, he tells us the origin of Matthew's gospel. And origin should probably go in scare quotes because it's clear that he has not the least clue as to what he's talking about. He says, quote, Matthew issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. End quote. Is it appropriate? to consider the time of Irenaeus, the 190s, as the upper limit for when the Gospel of Matthew could have been written. I don't think that it is for two reasons. The first reason is, Irenaeus says that the Gospel of Matthew is the favorite text of a heretical sect called the Ebionites. The Ebionites, according to him, are essentially Jewish Christians. I mean, they hate Paul, they practice circumcision, they adore Jerusalem as the house of God. It is important to note that Irenaeus does not actually know anything about the Ebionites firsthand. What he says about them is being summarized from another written source, including what he says about how they exclusively use the Gospel of Matthew. So what this means is that someone prior to Irenaeus wrote down in a book that uh, there's this sect called Ebionites and they use only Matthew's Gospel. So we can see from Irenaeus' own book that the Gospel of Matthew appears to have been around for some time before him 
perhaps a generation or so. And that's reason one why we can't put Matthew in the 190s. Now, reason two is that while Irenaeus is indeed the first to quote Matthew by name, there are possible echoes of the Gospel of Matthew that come from before his time. And one of them occurs in the lost writings of the Christian author Papias. And Irenaeus also had his book. Papias says, Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language, Ebraidi dialecto, and each one interpreted them as best he could. End quote. And by Hebrew, he could also mean Aramaic. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is not derived from Hebrew or Aramaic in any sense. In fact, it is based mostly on the Greek Gospel of Mark. Now, there's some controversy over what Papias means by the oracles of the Lord, or it could also be the words or the discourses of the Lord. And some people have thought that he must be talking about Q or something like that or some other source. But it's clear from the context that he's talking about a written gospel. In fact, he's talking about the known gospel of Matthew in some form. This is one of the most mysterious statements in all of the study of Christian origins, this Papias quote. But I will attempt to hopefully clear things up. When you have a gospel that is clearly written in Greek, and it happens to be your church's favorite gospel, the one that it considers the most important, but there are also other Greek versions of it floating around with names like the Gospel of the Hebrews, the Gospel of the Ebionites, the Gospel of the Nazarenes, of which there were at the time, there are a few different ways you can deal with it. You can try to claim that your version of Matthew is the only authentic one and the others are secondary, but that may not work in some cases. It may be too overwhelming if you have too many rival versions to refute. So another way to deal with this problem is to throw a kill switch and declare that technically no extant version of Matthew is truly authentic, including the one that we use. Because the original Matthew was really written in Hebrew and none of us are using a Hebrew gospel, Therefore, none of us have the original Matthew. But because Matthew was an apostle, and because we are the only church that can claim to draw its legitimacy from the apostles, the implication is that even though we are using a secondary Greek Matthew, we have the most correct one. A statement like this, that the real Matthew was written in Hebrew and everyone translated it as best he could, this is like antivirus software that's being introduced by Papias the IT consultant in order to simultaneously knock out all the Matthews in the system. And the mere fact that his version of Matthew, the one we're familiar with, would ultimately end up at the beginning of the New Testament is an indication in and of itself that that is the most correct one. It may not be the Hebrew Matthew, but according to Papias, no one has the Hebrew Matthew. Technically, there is now a known Hebrew version of Matthew, the Shem Tob gospel from the medieval period, but this seems to be a Jewish translation of the Greek Matthew into Hebrew. So there was no Hebrew Matthew at the time of Papias. Matthew is fundamentally a Greek text. Papias tried to claim that there was a Hebrew Matthew as a kind of a strategy to legitimate his own version as against others. But what this all indicates is that Matthew existed in the generation before Irenaeus. And in fact, several copycat versions also existed at that time which is the 160s, 170s. We also find that Matthew is possibly quoted by the Christian writer Athenagoras in the late 170s, his embassy for the Christians. He doesn't quote it by name, and in fact, the handful of Jesus quotes that he gives are all Q quotes. So we have to consider the possibility that this Q could have been a standalone book that survived well into the 2nd century, 
and only stopped being used because it was superseded by the New Testament collection. We could also look briefly here at some dumbass legends about the origin of Matthew's gospel that were shared by brother of the show Eusebius in the 4th century. First, he says that Matthew, who had at first preached to the Hebrews, when he was about to go to other peoples, committed his gospel to writing in his native tongue. We can see that this is an embellishment of the legend that Papias shared. Now notice how, since the time of Papias, this legend has received a backstory. The early Christians realized they needed to flesh out more of the why of Matthew's gospel. And we see that they came up with this scenario of Matthew the apostle, you know, running to catch his connecting flight. And he kind of hastily dictates his memories in the cab on the way in his native tongue. Another thing from Eusebius, he says that about that time, that's one of Eusebius' favorite phrases, about that time. He even uses it when he's talking about things that happen in two unrelated time periods. You know, Marie Antoinette was executed. About that time, AT&T was founded. I'm only slightly exaggerating, but he, he talks about Pantaenos, who was the head of the Christian school in Alexandria in the late 2nd century, supposedly. We talked about him somewhat in the beginning of episode 5. That's actually my favorite thing I've ever done on the show, the rogues gallery of 2nd century Christians. But Eusebius gives us a legend about Pantaenos from the time before he became head of the school in Alexandria. Eusebius says that Pantaenos was appointed as a herald of the gospel of Christ to the nations in the east and was sent as far as India. And there, he met some people who had known Christ personally. And he also found a gospel of Matthew in Hebrew that the apostle Bartholomew had left there back in the day. What can we say about this? I mean, where to even begin? The early Christians were fascinated by stories about their religion spreading to what would be, to them, fantastical places like India, which India was a term that could have had several different meanings, but I think it's notable that when Eusebius recounts this legend, his source for it that he gives is, they say. So everything I just said about Pantaenos is prefaced by Eusebius with the words, they say. They say a lot, don't they? And when those scamps get together, they're worse than a sewing circle. Well, let us categorically strike this stupid legend as inadmissible. I mean, it would have been nice if Eusebius had presented us with anything from a written source that could be verified. It would have been nice if they had included some more information about what was in that supposed Hebrew gospel of Matthew that Pantaenos found in India. But this is rather one of those exotic travel legends that the early Christians loved to share and make up. All this to say, Eusebius is not about to tell us anything useful about where Matthew's gospel came from. But we've already said that Matthew's gospel may have been floating around already in the 160s, so let's check in with Justin Martyr, who writes at about that time. Of course, the only two Christian books that he cites by name are Revelation and something called the Memoirs of Peter, which could be Mark's gospel. But anything that looks like he's getting it from a gospel he says that he's getting it from something called the Memoirs of the Apostles. Now, at one point in one of his books, he says that the Memoirs of the Apostles are also called Gospels. I and some others tend to think that that sentence was added by a later copyist who was uncomfortable with the fact that Justin appeared to know the Gospels, but he, for some reason, wasn't calling them Gospels. He kept calling them the Memoirs, in fact, he uses that term something like 11 billion times. 
and that's in his earlier book, The First Apology. His second major work was written around 160, The Dialogue with Trifo. And in this, we find that he's still calling these books the Memoirs of the Apostles, but one time he says that he's getting his Jesus material from something he calls the Gospel. But at any rate, Justin knows something resembling the Gospels. Does he know them by name? No. Does he quote them in their known wording? Hell no. This, we cannot do it justice yet, but Justin Martyr's use of the Gospels is a major red flag for the early dating of these books. The best way that I can explain it is that he appears to have been working off of a chaos of texts that were presented as stories and sayings of Jesus. Some of these are now found only in Matthew, some of them are found only in Luke, but in no instance do they match up precisely with either of those, and it's often argued that Justin is mishmashing these gospel quotes because he's trying to quote from memory, but make no mistake, he is getting these vacacta Jesus quotes from a written source. It's sometimes argued that Justin is actually using a gospel harmony, that Matthew and Luke existed already before him and someone just conveniently combined them, and that's what he's citing, but As the theologian Helmut Kester pointed out, and as many others have pointed out, that doesn't fully explain his strange use of the Gospels. Added to which, Justin gives us information from these memoirs that actually isn't in the canonical Gospels, as we know them, such as that Jesus was born in a cave, that Jesus was ugly. Justin says that that was written in the memoirs, uh, that he made plows and yokes as a carpenter, that the crowd mistook John the Baptist to be the Messiah, and he directly refuted it, that a fire was kindled in the Jordan River when Jesus stepped in to be baptized, that the Jews called Jesus a magician during his ministry, that Jesus was placed on a judgment seat during his passion and was sarcastically called upon by the crowd to judge them. Now, some of these things do show up in non-canonical gospels that we know about, like the infancy gospels, like the Protevangelium of James, uh, like the Gospel of Peter. But for Justin, there are always two sources for Jesus, the memoirs of the apostles and something else that he calls the Acts of Pontius Pilate. And he encourages his reader to go look that up in the archives. Now, there are two ways to look at all this. One is that all these canonical and non-canonical gospels were written well before Justin, but they reached him as just a mass of text that he nonetheless treated as if it came from a unified whole. Like, in other words, someone took every Jesus story and saying ever composed and just rolled it all into a big book called The Memoirs of the Apostles. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it, and I think the correct way, is to see Justin as operating in a time when the traditions and the sayings and the stories about Jesus were still in a state of flux. And they all came to Justin in a haphazard, chaotic state and they contain material from what appear to have been earlier variants of Matthew and Luke. It is a requirement that we do a show or even a series on this, but suffice it to say for now, for our purposes, that given the absolute state of the gospel quotes in Justin Martyr, we can't admit him as a witness for Matthew, because it's always possible that Matthew itself could have been written out of whatever source Justin is also using. I actually think that this Justin thing is a problem for both sides in the debate those who date the Gospels early, those who put them late. I mean, if they were early, then why is a guy from the year 156 quoting material that is so at odds verbally with what we find in them? On the other hand, if Justin is using a source that's secondary to the Gospels, which I find unlikely for several reasons, 
then we might find ourselves having to push back the date of the Gospels in order to account for this, but not by too much, I would have thought. But the state of the case is that we can't tell from reading Justin's writings whether the canonical Gospels existed yet in his time. But the main fellow that we have to talk about today is Ignatius. Now, Ignatius, we can't do him justice until we do a full series on him, but the mainstream theologians place him between about 110 and 140. And he is said to quote the Gospel of Matthew. Not by name, of course. Irenaeus is the first to quote it by name. But the letters of Ignatius are like these short, weird, almost blog posts that he sends to six churches when he's on his way to being executed. He's being frog-marched from Antioch to Rome by the Romans. All I will say about it for now is, given the scenario and the content of these letters, you got a lot of explaining to do if you think these are early, let alone from 110. In fact, there are manifest indications that these were written toward the end of the second century. Now, Ignatius appears to know the Gospel of Matthew, among other books. As to the times where Ignatius quotes Matthew unambiguously, he does so twice. First, from his letter to the Smyrnians, he's talking about Jesus during the greeting, and he says that Jesus was truly of the seed of David according to the flesh, was the Son of God according to the will and power of God, having truly been born of a virgin and having been baptized by John so that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him. End quote. When we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we can see that line about how John baptized Jesus so that all righteousness could be fulfilled. And when Ignatius writes to Polycarp, he's giving advice, and he says, Be in all things wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And that's a line from Matthew's Gospel. It's from his special material, in fact. So, that's where Matthew is quoted directly, but there's another famous passage in Ignatius that is claimed to come from Matthew's gospel from his letter to the Ephesians. Now, we have to read this one, but first, we know Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus, right? Virgin birth, born in Bethlehem, Magi arrive from the east because they saw his star. The star floats over to the location of the baby Jesus, and they come there, and they give the gifts. I uh, once attended a Lutheran church service. What amazed me about it was not only the fact that you could apparently drink coffee in church, but also the pastor covered this story in his sermon, and he actually talked about how unhistorical it was. Then after the service, I asked him whether he thought that Marcion could have written any of Paul's letters, and he rejected that completely out of hand. I mean, I don't get why you dismissed that out of hand. I mean, you're already halfway there once you start ripping these gospels to shreds. But anyway, a reading from the letter of Ignatius to the Ephesians on the birth of Jesus. For our God, Jesus Christ, was conceived in the womb of Mary by the dispensation of God, of the seed of David, but by the Holy Spirit. He was born and was baptized so that he might purify the water by means of his suffering. And Mary's virginity and her delivery and the death of the Lord escaped the notice of the archon of this aeon. Three mysteries of noise that were wrought in the silence of God. So then, how was he manifested to the aeons? A star shone in heaven above all the other stars, and its light was inexpressible, and its novelty struck men with astonishment. But all the rest of the stars, with the sun and the moon, formed a choir for this star, and it surpassed them all with its light. There was agitation as to where this new spectacle came from, so unlike anything else. 
From it, all magic was destroyed, and every bond of evil disappeared. Ignorance was pulled down, and the old kingdom was abolished, and God was manifested in human form for the renewal of everlasting life. And now, what God had prepared had its beginning. From then on, all things were in a tumultuous state because he mediated the dissolution of death. End quote. If you believe that that whole thing is a reference to the birth story from the Gospel of Matthew, you better pray that it isn't, because at best, we can consider this maybe free verse poetry that's loosely inspired by Matthew. It rather seems like the starting point for all these birth stories about Jesus was the prophecy in the book of Numbers that a, a star would come forth out of Jacob to lead Israel, and each one interpreted that as best he could. And that includes Matthew and Ignatius. In other words, they could have gotten their versions of the star story from a common source. So this was Ignatius, and he's the primary fool that's used by theologians to place the Gospel of Matthew in history. But ultimately, Ignatius is on the wrong side of the stability margin, that late second century cutoff point before which every single Christian book becomes undateable. Unless the date for Ignatius is conclusively established, then he can't be used to date Matthew. Now, my own view on Ignatius is essentially that Christians of the late second century were reacting to a book by the pagan Lucian called The Passing of Peregrinus. Now, either these letters were originally written by the historical Peregrinus, or they were written to appear as if they were, and this would explain why in the 190s these letters get quoted here and there, but they're unsourced. At one point, they're quoted, but we're told that they were written by a certain man, and the Catholics needed time to work them over make them more acceptable, just like they did with Paul's letters. The fact that they at times have vaguely heterodox views, like this depiction of the birth story where he's talking about the aeons and the archon, could be explained by the fact that they didn't originally come from the early mainstream church. But if they were written as late as I'm saying, then these quotes and echoes of Matthew's gospel that do appear in them, such as the part about fulfilling all righteousness, begin to make sense. So those were the early testimonies about Matthew that were actually useful to discuss in depth. But if you open any New Testament commentary, you'll find that a handful of other documents are usually brought forward as early witnesses to Matthew. So we'll explore some of these, but I warn you in advance to keep your hands inside the ride at all times because we are now moving far beyond the stability margin. And as such, the supposed witnesses to Matthew that we now have to deal with are a virtual parade of undateables so we'll dispense with them fairly quickly. We'll do a series or more on each of these at some point. Now, technically, Ignatius is outside the stability margin, too. We already talked about him, but Ignatius is so important to the dating of Matthew that we had to make an exception and talk about him more in depth. But the New Testament book called First Peter, the first letter of Peter, it says, even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Matthew says, Blessed are those who suffer for the sake of righteousness. First Peter, you're blessed if you're reproached for the name of Christ. Matthew, blessed are you when people insult you and say all kinds of evil about you because of me. And there are more such parallels. First Peter is conventionally put at around 90 AD. I can present cogent arguments to the effect that it came from around 150 AD. And there's also reason to doubt that the text of First Peter is unitary meaning that even if the core of 1 Peter is early, these lines that share similarity to Matthew could have come in at any point before 1 Peter reached its final form. 
The same goes for the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation, in its current form, has some affinity with Matthew's birth narrative, the myth of the woman who gives birth and flees with her messianic offspring to the wilderness. It's impossible to tell in what direction the borrowing goes here, but the book of Revelation also says about Jesus that he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail. Matthew says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. As I discussed in episodes 11 and 12, I'll be presenting the view that Revelation was originally a standard Jewish apocalypse that was co-opted by Christians in about the 130s, and they added material to it of this type. Could have been, in this case, taken directly from Matthew or from a common source that Matthew also used. The letter of James also supposedly knows Matthew, It's probably easier for someone to date that one big guy from uh, 90-day fiancé than it is for someone to date the letter of James. That's all I'll say about that for now. First Clement, traditionally put in the 90s AD, contains a handful of strange Jesus quotes, absolutely none of which correspond to the Gospels, but they're similar enough to the Gospels to indicate that they come from a common source. I mean, if Matthew was written before First Clement, we would have to question why exactly it is that First Clement knows certain Jesus quotes that are kind of similar to quotes in Matthew, but by no means line up with them. And it's not that the author is quoting from memory either, and that's why he's getting it wrong, because when he gives these quotes, he, like Justin, signals that he's copying them out of a book. I tend to think that First Clement was written by the early Catholic Church after the year 150, and certainly before the time that the New Testament was compiled and all of its books came into something close to their known forms. And there's actually a trend of similar writings like this that all seem to come from this same time period. What else? The Didache. It's a wacky church manual that seems like it was written by someone from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. It has some similarity in some lines to things that Matthew says, but it's impossible to tell in which direction the borrowing runs, Impossible to tell whether the Didache and Matthew did not in fact get this material from a common source, and above all, it's impossible to place the Didache in history. Dare I even list the dates that biblical scholars have given the Didache? It's eye-popping, the range they give. We'll forego that now in the interest of time. Suffice it to say that the Didache is not quoted by any source that we have until the year 200. What else do we have? The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. It's a Jewish paranetic book that was co-opted and added to by Christians, but unlike with Revelation, that fact is not even in dispute. It has, supposedly, some quotes in it that sound like Matthew, none that exactly correspond, and of course, take a shot, it's not possible to date the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs either. Not a few theologians have placed its final form in the second century. What about the Gospel of Peter? We know that some form of it existed in the 160s, and what copies we do have suggest that it may have borrowed from Matthew. But it's not at all clear when it was written. And the same goes for those infancy Gospels that are influenced by Matthew. The same goes for those various Jewish-Christian Gospels that were influenced by Matthew. Now, some of which we know next to nothing about other than their names. You know, the same goes for the Diatessaron which was a gospel harmony that was supposedly written in the 160s, but is not in fact attested until the 3rd century. And the same goes for Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. Theologians will try to argue that Polycarp's letter dates from the mid-2nd century, but in fact, this letter had to come from a time after the New Testament was compiled. 
And we said that that happened toward the end of the century. And the author of this letter clearly has the entire New Testament in front of him. He speaks what I call New Testament ease. In fact, the letter of Polycarp is actually a catena of New Testament quotes. What else? The letter of Barnabas likely comes from the 130s, and it quotes a line also found in Matthew when it says, It is written, Many are called, but few are chosen. Written where, exactly? And this author shows no other awareness of the gospel material. He, he could have been getting this quote from a source that he shared with Matthew. And we could bring up other stuff like the pseudo-Clementine basic document that uh, shows awareness of Matthew. Well, we're completely in the dark as to when that was written as well. Likely the late 2nd century. But the point is, if Matthew was written in the 1st century, it would have been quoted much more explicitly by these later authors. The fact that there are only these confusing echoes of things that could be Matthew, and it's never identified as such by name, and then suddenly, the first edition of the New Testament rolls out in the 170s and 180s, and immediately, every Christian writer on earth knows Matthew forwards and backwards. They know it by name, and they know it as well as a medieval scribe would. It all suggests that this book was written late. It was written to meet the immediate needs of a church or sect, and it looks and appears ancient just because of its setting and its language and its tone. And by the way, the earliest manuscripts of Matthew, the earliest physical copies, they're dated paleographically, but the date ranges that are given are all late 2nd century and later. Given everything that we've said here, we can be judicious and give as the upper limit for Matthew's gospel around, let's say, 150 AD. So now we've got at least some idea of our terminus ante quem, the latest possible date Matthew could have been written. What about our terminus a quo, the earliest possible date it could have been written? Uh, the book answer is that it had to have been written after Mark. But as far as possible, we should not date text using other undateable texts. Now, for all we know, Matthew could have been written 10 minutes after Mark was written. But if we don't know for sure when Mark was written, we can't use Mark to place Matthew. Now, Matthew very likely knows about the first Roman-Jewish war and how it ended, but it's not 100% explicit that he knows about it. So again, as with Mark, and even though it makes kind of a hash of the synoptic problem, we have to give Matthew the same terminus date that we gave Mark, 26 AD, the first year of Pilate's prefecture over Judea. That's the only date that can be reasonably defended. So, 26 AD at the low end around 150 at the high end. And when we come back, we'll see what the theologians have to say about the date of Matthew. Back after this. proceed to discuss the theologians' dates for this book, but first, I'll once again read off a full list of dates that have been assigned to Matthew over the years. Ready? 38 AD, 40 to 50 AD, 41 by brother of the show Eusebius, 42, 50 to 60, 50 to 64, 50 to 70, 58 to 69, 60, 60 to 70, 60 to 80, 61 to 66, 63, 
65 to 67. 65 to 75. 66 by brother of the show Irenaeus. 66 to 69. 67. 70. A lot of them say 70, including DJ Moo. That's Douglas Moo, the theologian. It's not the DJ Moo who might perform at your kids' birthdays. Then we have 70 to 80, 70 to 90, 70 to 110, 70 to 135, 75 to 80, 80, 80 to 85, including Bart Ehrman. He puts it there. 80 to 90, 80 to 95, 80 to 100, 81 to 96, 85, 85 to 105, 90, 90 to 94, 90 to 95, 90 to 100, 100. 110 to 130, 130, 130 to 170, 135 to 145, and lastly, 160 to 180. Just as with Mark, we see that Matthew could have been written anytime in a period of a century and a half. Now, this date range would be acceptable if we were talking about something like the Theogony, but when you're talking about a New Testament book, There needs to be more precision, especially when you think about all the far-reaching claims that are made based on early dating of the book. Now, some scholars, particularly those who are not Christians, will try to bring in this kind of thinking from a secular scholarship where they say things like, the Gospel of Matthew was written sometime between 50 and 100 AD. I mean, when you're talking about Jewish affairs in the early empire, a 50-year time difference might as well be an eternity. Now, the Jewish world of the year 50 was profoundly different from that of the year 100. So if you're going to say 50 to 100, then it's going to be somewhat difficult for you to then go on and try to explain Matthew's influences and his setting in life. But let's talk about the arguments that fundamentalists have used to assign a date to Matthew. Now, a quick note on this. My definition of fundamentalist may be somewhat unique, and I didn't clarify it last time, but when I say fundamentalist, I mean someone who believes in some sense that the New Testament is the word of God and takes that approach to it in their studies. And so it's someone whose first instinct is to harmonize apparent errors in the text. Now, for the most part, I see mainstream theologians, while they can in many cases be conservative, I see them as rather trying to protect their paradigm of Christian origins as a whole. And they'll sacrifice parts of the Gospels if they need to. Whereas to me, a fundamentalist is someone whose first instinct is always to give the New Testament author the benefit of the doubt. But the fundamentalists put Matthew well before 70 AD. And what's their first argument as to why? Well, because they take the titles of the Gospels seriously, they believe that Matthew was written by Matthew. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that on apologetic shows. It, mainstream scholarship has long jettisoned the idea that the Gospels were written by their stated authors. And to me, this is actually the thing that bugs fundamentalists the most. They can't get over it. So I hear it all the time on shows. Mark wrote Mark. Luke wrote Luke. John wrote John. Like, they're always ready to erupt with that when, when, it, when it comes to this. So Matthew wrote Matthew, and Matthew is the same Matthew who's the tax collector that Jesus summons to be a disciple at Matthew 9.9, and that's the same Matthew who's mentioned as the Matthew who was Matthew the tax collector, who's mentioned as being a member of the 12 disciples at Matthew 10.3. Book say the thing. Or actually, in this case, it's more like title say the thing. Because you ought to be aware that in this case, book does not actually say the thing. I mean, Nowhere in the text is Matthew the disciple said to be its author. So here, 
fundamentalists are betting all their chips on the title. So Matthew wrote Matthew, and the Gospel of Matthew was a direct eyewitness account of what Matthew, the tax collector, saw during his time as a disciple, and I guess, you know, writing notes on his wax palm pilot. And for a guy who was in, say, his 20s or 30s, when Jesus called him to be a disciple, the latest he could have been expected to live would have been the, like the year 80 AD, let's say. But he most likely wrote all this down within a few years of Jesus' death. And according to the fundamentalists, he had to have done so relatively early. And this ties in to their second argument for an early date, which we touched on last time, which is that the Gospel of Luke and its follow-up volume of Acts of the Apostles, which in their mind was written by a follower of Paul, does not know about the deaths of certain important church figures, and so it appears to have been written before the year 70 to them. And therefore, if a secondary account like Luke-Acts was written before 70, then a first-hand account like Matthew obviously should have been written even earlier than Luke-Acts. Another argument they use is the testimony of Papias that we talked about. Papias says that Matthew wrote his gospel in the Hebrew language, and others translated it as best they could. The fundamentalists take Papias to mean that the Matthew mentioned here was the disciple of Jesus who spoke and wrote in Aramaic. And they see Papias here as testimony that Matthew's gospel was written by this disciple as an eyewitness, and therefore at a very early date. And lastly, they point to the long-standing belief within Christianity that Matthew was written first. I said last time that it took until the 1780s for the view that Matthew was written first to be seriously challenged. But from the very beginning, the ancient Christians insist that Matthew came first. You know, Irenaeus says that, Origen says that, Jerome says that, God help him, and eventually Augustine says it. Now, when Augustine in the 400s finally declares that Matthew was written first, he has the last word on this topic until the Enlightenment, because he provides a key piece of the theory that had been missing up until then. Because he needed to explain why, even if Matthew came first, why is Mark still so similar to Matthew? And he says that that's because Mark seems to have been Matthew's attendant and epitomizer. So Augustine here is very subtly dropping the tradition that Mark is based on Peter's preaching. And, you know, he goes on to do a kind of a scholarly analysis of the Gospels to try to demonstrate that they're not in conflict. But Augustine says that just as Jesus said that the first shall be the last and the last shall be the first, so too are Matthew's gospel and John's gospel, the first and last of the canonical order, to be the preferred sources since they come from eyewitnesses. And so, to the fundamentalists who have been fighting a constant battle since the early 20th century to save this testimony of the early church fathers that Matthew came first, to them, since they put all the books early anyway, by maintaining that Matthew was the first of the four Gospels written, it follows that they must therefore argue a date for Matthew, which is, frankly, early as hell, and within less than a generation of Jesus' death. Now, we need to talk about something here for a minute that I didn't get to last time, and it has to do with how fundamentalists respond to those who say that the Gospel authors knew that the Jerusalem temple had been destroyed, something that happened in 70 A.D., and this is something that applies to all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They say that if it appears that Jesus predicted the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, that that is because he really did predict it, acting in the capacity of a prophet. And they say that if you assume that the gospel author put this prediction in Jesus' mouth 
to make it look like Jesus predicted something way back that had already happened by the author's time. They say that this is an example of anti-supernaturalistic bias. They call it a presupposition. They say that because you're biased against miracles, such as predicting the future, you bring this presupposition with you when reading the Gospels that, you know, no one can actually predict the future. And I will say that 95% of Christian apologetics literature is accusing their opponents of biases and presuppositions. And in that, they have very many points of contact with right-wing media. But here's the thing. Yes, it's possible that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. I mean, I, as I said in episode 18, don't actually think that his apocalypse speech was predicting the events of 70 AD, but let's assume for the sake of argument that it was. It's possible that Jesus predicted it or that anyone could have predicted it, but that doesn't really matter. Because with these gospels, we are reading stories. And it's just like what Robert M. Price said, stories about miracles are not miracles. We are reading what the author wants to write. And as we see from the relationships between the different gospels, these authors did not scruple to alter and remove from and add to the words of Jesus when they saw fit. When the author of Mark speaks about the temple, he is in dialogue with his audience, and Jesus is merely ex parte to that discussion. So the question of whether someone can really predict the future, and if we don't think so, then we're too biased to analyze these books properly, is in fact a non sequitur. And the only reason that anyone would ever say this is to get gullible Christian believers to think that their opponents are criticizing these texts because of an anti-Christian worldview. Because, you know, I mean, not to get all new atheisty on you, but, uh, you know, dare we open the Hindu Vedas and get the apologists to apply this same logic to the many predictions that are made there? But let's talk about the mainstream approach to dating the Gospel of Matthew. What's the conventional view? Well, as with Mark, there are two schools of thought. Now, with Matthew, quite a few more mainstreamers are open to putting it in the second century, and they use much the same arguments that I'll present later, but not a highly significant number of them. It's just that there's a lot more of them than is the case with Mark's gospel. But in the mainstream, the majority place Matthew between 75 and 85 AD, and there's a smaller, louder school of thought in the mainstream that tries to put Matthew in the years leading up to 70. Before we tackle them one by one, let's first check out the arguments that all the mainstream schools share in common. First of all, to the mainstreamers, regardless of when they put Matthew, they recognize that it was not written by an eyewitness. And this is because the Gospel of Matthew contains substantially all of the Gospel of Mark, and sometimes in verbatim agreement. So Matthew came after Mark, and they usually put Matthew about 10 years after they put Mark. I guess because Mark is like a little meatloaf. You know, it needs time to bake in the oven before you can take it out and turn it into Matthew. Another thing that the mainstreamers all have in common is that they all say that Matthew comes before Ignatius because the letters of Ignatius appear to be aware of the Gospel of Matthew. We talked about that earlier. And they also think that Matthew is known by the Didache, Polycarp, Papias, Justin, so on and so forth. But Ignatius, in their mind, comes before all these. They usually stick Ignatius in the time of Trajan usually around 110. So Matthew's gospel had to have been written before 110, full stop in their mind. And maybe even a significant length of time before 110 for someone like Ignatius to be familiar with it to the point where he can quote it off the top of his head while he's being marched off to prison. 
So these are the arguments that all the mainstream holds in common. After Mark, before Ignatius. Now, let's tackle the arguments of the school that puts Matthew between 75 and 85. Why do they say that Matthew needs to be put in this time period? Well, just like with Mark, they say that Matthew is aware of the outcome of the first Roman-Jewish war. You'll find that a lot of the same arguments they apply to Mark, they also apply to the other synoptics, and so it is here. They say that with Mark 13, what I call Apocalypse Junior, which is Jesus' end-of-the-world prediction, Mark was aware of the events of the 70s AD, or at least their lead-up. And since Matthew not only follows Mark, but replicates substantially the contents of Apocalypse Junior, then Matthew must also have been aware of these events. But not only that, they say that Matthew was in fact more explicitly aware of the outcome of the war than Mark was. And they point to Matthew's treatment of the parable of the wedding feast. This is something from his Q source. Jesus tells a parable about a king who invited guests to a banquet, only to find that they refused their invitations. In some cases, they actually kill the servants who were sent to invite them. And he then tells his still-living servants to go out instead to the highways and pick up any random schmo and invite them to the feast, instead of those who were originally called. It's like in that movie Death of Stalin, where they pull random people off the streets so they can perform that symphony a second time and still have a crowd. Well, the point of the parable is obvious. God initially called his chosen people, the Jews, into his kingdom. They allegedly refused the summons, and now anyone can come in. But Matthew, of course, is not one for subtlety. And after he talks about those who refused their invitation and killed the servants, he has Jesus say, quote, But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. End quote. Yeah. He might as well have said, Hey, folks, I'm writing after 70 AD. In Luke's version of the parable, which comes from the same source where Matthew got his, we in fact get a different take on this story, as we'll see next time, but Matthew thinks that this parable is about the Jews and Gentiles, or he makes it be about the Jews and the Gentiles, and the murder of the servants refers to what he sees as the Jews killing and persecuting their own prophets, a thing which he is piping hot about throughout his gospel, and God struck back at them by putting them to death and burning their city in the First Roman Jewish War. I agree with the theologians here. Could not be more obvious that this statement indicates a post-70 date. On this, Matthew also preserves Mark's parable of the wicked tenants, where Jesus describes the vine growers who keep killing the landowner's slaves whenever he sends them to collect the produce. Eventually, they kill his son, and now it's time for him to come and give the field to others. So it's uh, like a metaphor for the Jews killing the prophets and messengers and ultimately killing Jesus. Matthew has Jesus explicitly add to this parable and say, Therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. So he's operating at a time in which the Jews have been collectively punished, and this event occurred sometime in the past. By the way, Matthew here makes an important change to Mark. Mark says that the vine growers killed the man's beloved son. Matthew strikes the word beloved. A bit too on the nose, Mark, you're losing him. So Matthew changes it to make it less obvious, but then he, of course, has Jesus come in with that totally unnecessary summary where he illustrates the lesson of the parable. So you cannot get consistency from this guy. Another thing the theologians point to in placing the Gospel of Matthew after 70 is that it presupposes a Christian church, which suggests a late date. After such a church had been established and was already a going concern and was even getting some experience under its belt. 
I mean, first of all, Matthew is the only gospel to use the word ecclesia or church. And he, of course, says that Peter will be the rock upon which the church is built. This church appears to have a governing body because Peter is granted the power to bind and loose. In other words, he's being granted authoritative power. And what's implied here is that Matthew's church is led by clergy who are claiming to derive their authority from Jesus by way of Peter. Another thing, Matthew pulls Jesus's Teddy Ruxpin cord at one point and makes him say something from the Q source, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. Something that the second century rabbis also said, by the way. But then Matthew has Jesus add some unique material to that. He goes on to say, if he doesn't listen, then take two or more with you. So you'll have at least two witnesses. And then he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then he's to be treated like the Gentile and the tax collector, i.e. he is to be excommunicated. In the minds of these mainstream theologians, for there to be an established church with a church government in place, having the authority to bind and loose and excommunicate, you're looking at second generation after Jesus at least. And the author is very awkwardly putting this church government material in the mouth of Jesus to make it seem like ancient prescriptions. Another thing they say is that Matthew has a more highly developed view of Jesus, a higher Christology than Mark does. And this, to them, indicates a date somewhat after Mark so that these more advanced views could have had time to develop. For example, a much greater emphasis is placed on the divinity of Jesus with the birth narrative, and a greater effort is made to place Jesus in the line of David and the patriarchs. To the theologians, something like this comes about when you begin with a historical Jesus who was a more humble, unassuming figure, and slowly this mythological accretion sets in as the sect grows and develops. And they see this process as playing out in Matthew's gospel. And going along with this, they also point to the final sentence in Matthew's gospel. Part of it says, basically, go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is an invocation of the Trinity, or at least what theologians see as a very early formulation of it, but certainly something that would be a bit advanced if it was written in the first few years after Jesus' death. So these are the theologians who put Matthew around the 80s AD. But as I said, and just like with Mark, there are some within the mainstream who seek to put Matthew early. They try to put it before 70 and even before 60. One of the reasons they give is that Matthew at times appears to suggest that the Jerusalem temple is still standing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to be reconciled with your brother before you present your offering at the altar. He cautions the listeners against swearing by the altar or by the temple. And these examples are found in Matthew's own special material that he wasn't necessarily getting from an older source. And of course, when Peter shakes down a fish for money on the orders of Jesus, this was done to pay the didrachma tax that was, as far as we know, a voluntary contribution that was paid by Jews, but it was paid to service the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. So taking these things together, some mainstream theologians place the writing of Matthew at a time in which the temple was still standing, that is prior to 70 AD. But what about the fact that Jesus appears to predict the temple's destruction in the material that Matthew has kept from Mark's Apocalypse Jr.? Well, these theologians who call for an early date say that this prediction was not explicitly about the events of 70 AD. They seem to be taking a page out of Born in the Second Century's playbook. They say that whoever originally wrote it was trying to mimic similar examples of prophecies found in the Old Testament. 
Now, they also argue that the Gospel of Matthew has to be early because Jesus is Torah observant, even more so than in Mark. Therefore, Matthew had to have been written before a time when the Christians fully broke with the idea of observing Torah, and they point to the impact of Paul's missionary travels in the 40s and 50s AD as being the catalyst for this. On the same token, they say that Matthew's Gospel seems divided on whether Gentiles can be admitted to the church. Of course, the Gospel as a whole appears to welcome the idea that Gentiles are part of the church, but it still seems like a sore subject, and this indicates an early date to them. What else do they point to? Toward the end of Matthew's Gospel, the author talks about how Judas killed himself. It is version number 15 of 500 of this tale that we get from various sources in early Christianity. But here it says that the temple priests took the blood money that Judas gave back to them and bought the potter's field as a place to bury strangers. Seems like it would be a great name for a band. And Matthew says that, for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. The term for field of blood is given in Aramaic. Some mainstream theologians who put Matthew early believe that this statement about the field of blood is evidence for that, because after the mass destruction of the First Roman Jewish War, it would have been irrelevant to point out such a location, you know, just some special little field that was significant to the temple priests in some way. And with this, we have now reviewed the arguments of the theologians, and it seems like there should be a lot more of them, but really, when it comes to Matthew's gospel, the theologians tend to let Mark and Ignatius do a lot of the heavy lifting. It's after Mark, and it's before Ignatius. And if you put Mark early, you can explain away all the little quotes that make Matthew appear late. If you put Mark late, you can explain away all the little quotes that suggest that Matthew is early, like these quotes about the temple still being standing in the writer's time. But when we come back, we'll comment on them and advance our own views on the date of Matthew. Back after this. We've examined the theologians' arguments, such as they are, but we have somewhat of our own to say now on the date of Matthew. I did put the Gospel of Mark between 115 and 140, with 120 being, to me, the likeliest date, but let's not babble like the pagans do and build our argument for an undateable text on the foundation of another undateable text. We know that Matthew was aware of Mark and had to come after Mark. Let's let that suffice, and let's look at each text in isolation, and not try to say that Mark needed 10 years to bake in the oven, and that's the reason why we put Matthew at 130, because I do in fact put Matthew around 130, or at least in the late 120s. The Gospel of Matthew was written by a community led by Syrian Christian clerics in heavy dialogue with Rabbinic Judaism, at a time in which the pressure for Matthew's religion to formally split from Judaism was more intense than ever. You know, one small example of this is that wherever Mark says, the synagogues, or the scribes, Matthew will say, their synagogues, their scribes. Matthew is writing during a highly fraught period in which his congregants are engaging in running street battles with the local synagogue. The push factors that we saw only hinted at in the Gospel of Mark have reached a fever pitch in the Gospel of Matthew. 
and this matches the environment of the lead-up to the Bar Kokhba rebellion of the 130s. And keep in mind, something that's often lost sight of is the fact that Simeon Bar Kokhba, the revolutionary leader in that war in Judea, was active for some years prior to the actual eruption in the war in the early 130s. And what we see happening in this era of Bar Kokhba, who was himself endorsed by at least some of the rabbis, is a Judaism that's beginning to stab in the direction of enforcing a kind of orthodoxy, of the type of which could create a push reaction of the kind that Matthew is reacting to. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is in fact in direct conflict with rabbinic Judaism, so we should talk somewhat about the early rabbis here. But before that, a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of the heavens was compared to a man, a king, one who put on a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his slaves to call those who'd been invited to the feast, and they didn't want to come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Say to those invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner. My bulls and my fattened animals have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they, being unconcerned about it, went off. One of them to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest of them grabbed his slaves and abused them and killed them. The king, having heard this, was angry. And after he sent his troops, he destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he says to his slaves, The wedding feast is indeed ready, but those who were invited weren't worthy. So, go out to the main roads, and whoever you find, call them to the feast. And when those slaves went out to the roads, they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, and the feast was full of guests. But when the king entered to see the guest, he saw a man who wasn't dressed in wedding attire, and he says to him, Friend, how did you enter without wedding attire? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind his feet and hands and throw him into the outer darkness. There, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because many are called, but few are elect. That was a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. And now a reading from the Talmud, from the Tractate Shabbat, from the 2nd century AD. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai told the following parable. This is like a king who invited his servants to a feast, but didn't set a time for them to come. The wise among them adorned themselves and sat at the entrance to the king's house. They said, Is the king's house missing anything necessary for the feast? And certainly the king could invite them at any moment. But the fools among them went to attend to their work and said, Is there such a thing as a feast without the toil of preparing for it first? While the feast is being prepared, we'll attend to other matters. Suddenly, the king asked his servants to come to the feast, and the wise among them entered before him adorned in their finest clothes, but the fools entered before him dirty. The king was happy to greet the wise ones, but angry to greet the fools. He said, These wise servants who adorn themselves for the feast will sit and eat and drink, but these fools who didn't adorn themselves will stand and watch. And Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai said, there's a similar outcome for those who think that their day of death and judgment is far away and don't prepare for it. That was a reading from the Talmud. The Pharisees emerged as a kind of a sect within Judaism back during the Hasmonean period. They were known for their insistence, at least originally in their personal lives, that the Jewish Torah be accurately observed. And the Pharisees recognized that observing the Torah is not such a straightforward proposition in every case, so they, over time, built up a series of systems and codes to try to get as close to an observance of the Jewish law in daily life as it was possible to get. 
And for that reason, they came to be admired by many everyday Jews, and they came to be seen as authoritative experts on difficult questions in the law. You know, kind of like how in North Korea, where they have full-time experts on Marxism that you can consult if you run into an ideological conundrum. But in any case, this strict attention to the law and how it could be functionally and practically observed in everyday settings positioned the Pharisees to become dominant within Judaism after the temple had been destroyed. Before that, the case could be made that the true center of Judaism was the sacrificial cult, administered for the most part by the Sadducees, but when that ended, the Pharisees were left to pick up the pieces. You know, they had been a relatively small, relatively informal movement prior to 70, but in the decades after it, as they filled the power vacuum, they ultimately became the rabbis, the early rabbinic Judaism. And in discussing the Pharisees there, we had some help from the Jewish scholar Daniel R. Schwartz. But the key thing to remember about early rabbinic Judaism is that when you read the Talmud, which was compiled around the year 200 and later, it is clear that similarly with the early Christians, the early rabbis also are not entirely sure about the origins of their movement. And as with early Christianity, we see among the rabbis the phenomenon of trying to trace their origins to a single event, a council, or a Sanhedrin in the 90s AD, in which they define some of their fundamental beliefs. And before that, they place the age of the so-called Great Assembly, and this was seen as a kind of a precursor to themselves and their movement, and one that linked them directly with the Old Testament prophets who preceded it. So we see here, as in early Christianity, the attempt to dress history up so that it's nice and neat and organized. You know, it's just like in that game, Bart's Nightmare, where Principal Skinner can dress you up in a suit and you don't take damage, but you're, you're forced to walk very slowly and, and you can't jump. And whenever you see these attempts by a later school or sect to straighten out its early history, you know, with these obviously legendary heroes and councils and decrees, the reality is most likely that the history and development of the sect was so messy that they couldn't keep track of it or make sense of it. And don't forget that ancient people didn't really have a modern sense of history. They, they weren't adherents of the Annals school. So instead, we get Bob got the tradition from Dave, Dave gave it to Jill, Jill gave it to Mary Lynn, and Mary Lynn gave it to us. All this to say, the Gospel of Matthew was written at a time when the rabbis were still in the process of getting their own shit together. And the reason that Jesus is made to oppose the Pharisees, the reason the Gospel authors in general oppose the Pharisees, I mean, at least the reason Matthew and Mark oppose them, is because Matthew and Mark are unaware of the direction and the trajectory in which normative Judaism is developing. We now know that it developed in a direction in which the rules for interpreting Torah that were being set by these authoritative Pharisaic rabbis would become what defined Judaism. But Mark and Matthew are unaware of that. I mean, in their mind, there's this new phenomenon called rabbis, and they get to teach authoritatively. And in Matthew and Mark's telling, the rabbis should teach God's truth. They should teach Matthew and Mark's form of Judaism, which is like this paganized, mysterized, Gnosticized buffet of nonsense. They don't understand why the Pharisaic rabbis are so focused on systems and codes that Mark and Matthew see as rationalizing or abrogating parts of the Torah. You know, to them, the real Torah is something that should be practiced and observed innately because it derives from recognizing and sharing God's love. And so they and the Pharisees are never going to be on the same page. But this explains why the treatment of Pharisees in Mark and Matthew is so strange. I mean, it makes no sense 
if they're talking about the early first century Pharisees, you know, constantly browbeating these poor guys, you know, these itinerant teachers and sages, it pretty much only makes sense in the context of a power struggle of the second century in which these Pharisees are slowly transmuting into the rabbis. And this is in fact why we see rabbinic arguments deployed by Jesus, like the light and heavy argument that shows up so much in the Talmud. If God cares for the birds, then how much more will he care for you? You know, the rabbis also use the type of argument called binyan av, or the use of one Bible passage to justify another. Jesus uses this same technique. We can learn these things from the scholar Aaron Gale. And we can talk about direct parallels between the Gospels and the Talmudic writings, like the one that I just read. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai is one of Matthew's heroes. In fact, it's not a stretch to say that he makes Jesus into a Yochanan ben Zakkai, at least in some passages. At any rate, it's clear that those two stories, the one in Matthew and the one in Shabbat, come from a common source. The Mishnah says, Come and see how great the poor in spirit are before the Holy One. Matthew's Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The Mishnah says, That which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah. The rest is its interpretation. Matthew's Jesus says, In everything, treat others as you'd wish them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. And keep in mind, many of the stories and the sayings in the Mishnah are said to go back to the first century, but that's just it. They are said to go back to that time. But it seems very clear that these stories and sayings, having been written down and compiled at the end of the second century, we cannot discount the possibility that the bulk of them were composed in the second century. Because only in the decades after 70 AD did the Pharisees begin to convert into a movement that would actually have need of these stories and sayings and traditions. And the fact that they are so cagey about their provenance suggests that it was later than supposed. And we, all of us, have already dealt with the exact same phenomenon with the Torah and with the Old Testament prophets. For centuries, it was believed that these Old Testament books were all very ancient. I mean, that's what they themselves say. But finally, the paradigm began to shift. So that now, our view is that while the stories represent themselves to be ancient, they were in fact written much later, and written with the intent to appear ancient. I spoke last time about my analogy between the gospel writers and the film Requiem for a Dream. And I don't want to give the impression that we have to look only at modern examples to find analogies with a writer going out of their way to obscure the time of their writing. The writers of the Old Testament books set the tone for that hundreds of years before the New Testament writers and before the rabbis who followed their original example. So we've talked about the rabbis, but Another quick piece of evidence that Matthew was written around the 130s would be its affinity to the letter of Barnabas, which is most likely dated to this period, as we discussed in episodes 5 and 6. Matthew draws on a lot of the same exegetical material as Barnabas. They have a very similar view of Jesus as a scapegoat, for example, and they both call up Old Testament parallels to support that. In fact, Matthew in general is very concerned to proof text the events that occur in the life of Jesus and align them up with various Old Testament sayings or stories. And in this, he's very similar to Justin Martyr, who does the same thing in the 150s. Matthew should in fact be seen as the first of the so-called second-century apologists who found themselves in dialogue with Judaism, with rabbinic Judaism, and needed to call up as many Jewish Bible passages as they could to validate their beliefs. Matthew and Barnabas are the pioneers in this field, 
and they should no longer be seen as the precursors of those second century apologists, but actually as members of their school, who wrote at almost the very same time. It's only the gospel's style and structure that's prevented us from clearly seeing that fact until now. But Matthew was also close in time to Mark, and we can get that sense merely on thematic grounds. And as we've seen, he helps pull back some of that veil that Mark had pulled around his world and obscured things like the controversy with the rabbis and so on. But it isn't only thematic grounds that allow us to put Matthew at a late date. There are also some honking big anachronisms in Matthew's gospel. The first one we'll talk about is a very famous one. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus accuses the Jews of killing all the prophets from Abel all the way to, quote, Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. In Luke's version, and they got it from the same source, it says, Abel to Zechariah. And Matthew says, Abel to Zechariah the son of Berechiah. What their source was likely talking about was the murder of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, who was killed in the temple according to Second Chronicles. But Matthew appears to think that this reference is to something Josephus also talked about in his Jewish war book, the murder of Zechariah, the son of Baruch, in the temple. And I regret to inform you that that event occurred sometime between 66 AD and 69 AD. And I know what you're thinking. Nice. But what I'm thinking is anachronism. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, if you're taking the Old Testament chronology seriously, would have died in like the 800s BC. And here Jesus is trying to make the lovely point that the Jews killed every righteous man that was sent by God in history. So it would be a bit curious if he stopped that timeline in 800 BC. I rather think that this Zechariah character mentioned by Josephus was the man intended, and I tend to think that the Q source was written after 70 AD. And either Luke removed the phrase son of Berechiah, or the Q source indeed said Abel to Zechariah, and Matthew added the phrase son of Berechiah. If that second option is in fact what happened, then it is extremely likely that Matthew was written in the second century, or at least that part of Matthew was edited in the second century. But what about other anachronisms? I mean, we talked extensively in episode 9 about how the author of Matthew appears to view John the Baptist, who apparently died in the 30s AD, as a long-departed past figure. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. We can also talk about how some of Matthew's unique Old Testament quotes that he added to the gospel as part of his special material sometimes appear to follow not the ancient Septuagint translation, not the Hebrew Bible, but the second century Greek translations of the Jewish scriptures. What else? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus picks up a child and sets it in their midst. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I mean, that in itself is proof of a late date with the in my name, but Matthew adds to it. He says, don't despise these little ones because their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father. Guardian angels, a belief that is unattested in Judaism until the second century. Another thing, Jesus says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. The chair of Moses is a physical seat at the front of the synagogue. Its use dates to the 2nd century. 
Matthew twice portrays the Sadducees as being active outside of Jerusalem. In fact, he lumps them in with the Pharisees and accuses them of the very same things that he accuses the Pharisees of doing. This is the kind of thing that only makes sense if, frankly, Matthew did not know what Sadducees were. He either learned about them from Josephus or from his rabbinic source, or he could be using them as stand-ins for some Jewish sect in his own time who claimed to be carrying on their traditions. Because the Sadducees, who were heavily associated with Jerusalem, their sect or their group more or less did not survive the events of 70 AD. And where they were located or what they believed is only of academic concern to Matthew. Now to him, they're just another one of those puppets lying next to his work table. Another thing, Matthew possibly borrowed phrases from the Enchiridion of Epictetus. It's from the early 2nd century. There are a few echoes of it in the gospel. There's about 10. And they're just the kind of borrowings that you would expect from someone who was familiar with the Enchiridion, having read it more than once. I mean, they're not explicit quotes. And that would make sense because some of the concepts in the Stoicism of Epictetus correspond with the mentality of the Q document. You know, things like not worrying about what to eat or what to wear because God provides for you, the instructions on how to pray and petition God. And we saw that Matthew comes out of a community where this Q source and these Q sayings were highly valued. And so Matthew may have also had occasion to peruse the Enchiridion and recalled it in some key phrases in his gospel, and Douglas Sharp outlined those in a book. And lastly, Matthew, of course, preserves all the same anachronisms that Mark does. The Pharisees stalking around Judea like the stormtroopers on Tatooine. The copious use of the term rabbi that wasn't widely used until the second century, or at least the late first century. You know, Galilee having synagogues out the ass. Christians seeing Jews as a distinct and separate group. The Pharisees trying to enforce ritual handwashing, which was still considered quirky in first century Judaism but became widely accepted only in, take a shot, second century Judaism, etc., etc., etc. And when it comes to these anachronisms, by the way, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just one of these would be a go-home stain for the entire gospel, you know, let alone dozens of them. But now that I've shared a more radical view on the date of Matthew, let's respond to these standard Christian views, starting with the fundamentalists. Their first argument was that they believe Matthew was an eyewitness, uh, being written by its stated author. Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke. The manuscript titles say that. On this subject of the church fathers always agreeing that Matthew the tax collector wrote this book and that it was the first of the four to be written and Matthew was an eyewitness, it's important to note that the church fathers manifestly do not know what they're talking about. They don't hesitate to pass on legends, even conflicting legends. Not only that, but legends that seem to be designed to explain why this book appears in the collection, why it has its title, and why it appears first. They seem to be in the position of having been handed the New Testament compilation and having to figure out themselves who Matthew was. And we'll talk about that process briefly later, but notice how in all these discussions by the early Christians of Matthew's origin, we get nothing from it that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get by just staring at the New Testament for a while ourselves and coming up with an educated guess. And this same thing applies to the fundamentalist argument that Matthew has to be quite early because all of our ancient testimony agrees that it was written first. It looks rather like they're trying to do an ex post facto justification for why the Gospel of Matthew appears first in their New Testament collections. And I thought we'd have been able to see through stuff like this, 
I mean, if a politician says something that they don't like, the fundamentalists examine it syllable by syllable. I mean, remember all the exegesis that they did on the politician who made a certain offhand gaffe or comment that he intended to visit all 57 U.S. states. They're still talking about that and coming up with all these theories to the effect that it wasn't really a gaffe. He really meant something sinister and he just let it slip. Well, the early church fathers are clearly being reactive when they share their theories as to who wrote Matthew and when. And if we would just apply the same scrutiny that we do in these other areas, we might be able to see that more clearly. But there's nothing inside or outside the text other than these dubious testimonies, which, by the way, are usually following each other, like in a game of telephone. Nothing that could firmly settle the question of authorship or date. I mean, it's enough for us to observe that an eyewitness writing a few years after Jesus' death would not simply drag his cursor over Mark's gospel and copy and paste. And not only that, the text of Matthew does not explicitly state that it is written by an eyewitness, which is kind of important, I would have thought. But in general, these books-say-the-thing arguments hardly deserve refutation. And speaking of that, another fundamentalist argument was that because Acts of the Apostles seems early, then it's likely that all the Gospels must now, therefore come before it. No one will believe that Acts of the Apostles is early after I do my series on it. I say that because even those who maintain it for religious reasons will have a doubt. The pastors are going to be getting a lot of questions in the weeks after that, but we touched on this last time because it's an argument that affects all four Gospels, so we covered it when speaking about Mark. Now, the fundamentalists also rely on the testimony of Papias. We'll do a series on him at some point, but we said earlier that Papias falls into the same category as the rest of these early Christians who are very obviously setting up post hoc explanations for strange elements that they're finding in their books. But let's move on and discuss what the mainstream theologians have said. We saw that whether the mainstream theologians put Matthew before or after 70, there are a set of arguments that are common to both of these groups. The first one is that all other things aside, Matthew has to be placed after Mark, since the mainstream view is that Mark was written first. And I agree. However, if you already have trouble placing Mark in history, how much more trouble will you have placing Matthew, even though Matthew relies on it? And of course, all theologians believe that the letters of Ignatius are aware of Matthew's gospel, and they were supposedly written around 110, so Matthew's gospel was in place well before 110. We mentioned this earlier when we were setting up our terminus dates. One of the key reasons that Ignatius is placed around 110 to begin with is because of statements made by the church writers after the year 200 or so. I mean, we saw that they're unreliable with their backstories for the New Testament writings, so, I mean, that's only amplified further with their backstories for Ignatius and these other writings. I mean, when it comes to the New Testament, they're laughable. But when it comes to these extra-canonical books, they're hopeless, frankly. But ultimately, this Ignatius thing is just another example of dating an undateable text using another undateable text, so fuck out of here. But let's respond somewhat to those theologians who put Mark at around 70 and then put Matthew about 15 to 20 years later. They say that Matthew was aware of the outcome of the first Roman-Jewish war, even more so than Mark was. This is the thing. I agree, but... Notice how little these gospel authors allude to the war and its outcome, and notice the way they allude to it. 
Because not only is it this highly telescoped view where it looks like they're referring to something that occurred in the distant past, but it's also the subject of parables and aphorisms like the parable of the wicked tenants. And because of this, it seems like the Roman-Jewish war happened like a generation before them, and they've already drawn various theological lessons from it and had time to reflect on it. So, I mean, knowledge of the war puts Matthew after 70. But just like I said with Mark, it doesn't mean that he needs to be put right after 70. But a note on what I said last time about Jesus predicting the end of the world. And I said that that prophecy is often related to the events of 70 because it happens right after Jesus says that the temple will be torn down. Well, there's one very prominent Christian scholar who agrees with me that Jesus is not predicting the events of 70 AD. And that Christian scholar is the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Because he changes the question that Mark has the disciples ask Jesus. In Matthew, after Jesus says the temple will be torn down, they say, When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That is not what Mark had. Mark had them say, when will these things happen, and what's the sign that these things are going to take place? And so Matthew, like me, recognized that the wording of that question is confusing. He understands that Jesus is about to make a speech about the end times, and so he has the disciples explicitly specify that that's what they're asking about. Whereas in Mark, it's not clear whether they mean to ask about the end times or the destruction of the temple. So Mark has misled many theologians by being so obscure, but he hasn't misled Matthew. I bet if Matthew was alive today, he'd be a somewhat more radical theologian. He wouldn't be an apologist. He'd be like a Mark Goodacre type. Now, of course, unlike Mark Goodacre, Matthew would still believe in a Q source. But another argument that the theologians used to date Matthew around the 80s AD was that it appears to reflect an established church, which it does. And how? This looks like a regimented institution. It has a clergy that traces its legitimacy back to Peter the Rock. It has excommunication. It arbitrates disputes. It issues authoritative teaching. Now, Mark's gospel didn't contain a lot of this stuff. It was rather implied in Mark's gospel. But the theologians don't see it reflected explicitly in Mark's gospel, so they put Mark somewhat before 70, and Matthew they put in like the 80s, and they say, you know, look at this highly developed church that Matthew has. It indicates a length of time between Mark and Matthew. And then they say that that length of time is 10 years. So I can only assume that, therefore, Matthew's church was some kind of turnkey operation. They most likely hired McKinsey. But come on. Mark and Matthew both come out of the 120s AD when Christianity had already existed in some form and had been developing since shortly after the year 70. And this is why they not only reflect an established church, I think Mark does too, but church politics isn't really his theme. But that's not only why they reflect an established church, but they also have a very obscure view of the origins of that church. It's like Peter was given the authoritative power by Jesus to bind and loose. And then, in some vague sense, the church of Matthew's day also has the power to bind and loose. It's clear that the author does not know or does not understand what happened in the length of time between Peter being granted the authority and his own clergy inheriting the authority. So he posts up this confusing myth and hopes that it'll imply more than it says. In any case, Matthew's church is so developed that even on the traditional timeline, if we assume that Christianity began in the 30s, 
it still seems too early for 80 AD. Added to which, Matthew's church looks less like the ideal Christian church from the forged letter of Pliny from the end of the 2nd century, so much as it looks like a counter-rabbinic sect that we would expect to see in the mid-2nd century. And in the place of the written Torah, they've substituted the deity Jesus, who is the actual incarnation of God. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus says, Wherever two or three of you have gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst. And the Mishnah says, Whenever there are two sitting together and words of Torah are spoken between them, the divine presence rests with them. So this is not only a church, but almost a community of alternative rabbis. Uh, The power to bind and loose that we mentioned, that also appears in rabbinic literature, as Chaim Maccabee points out. The rabbinic literature says that the power to bind and loose belongs to the rabbi's own courts. And Maccabee says that that's probably why Peter is given the keys to bind and loose in the plural instead of just the key. I mean, why does he need a whole keychain? It implies that his power will supersede any number of other competitors, which would be the rabbinic courts and the Sanhedrin. Now, another argument was that the Gospel of Matthew has a more developed Christology than that of Mark. And so if Mark was written in 70, then Matthew was probably written sometime later. Uh, Not necessarily. I mean, the Christology of the Gospels is a complex topic, but remember that the Gospels are not theological treatises. The authors are constrained by their framework. They're not at liberty, like Tertullian is, to ramble on about the relationship between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit for like 258 chapters. But with that said... In the Gospel of Mark, there's already awareness of three entities called the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're treated as distinct but nonetheless related. And Matthew doesn't really show any truly novel development of these ideas. It only appears that he does because he edited and expanded Mark. I mean, of course, he's going to go more into depth on these topics. So unless we are finding outright creedal statements in these Gospels, I don't think that the Christology that's hinted at here and there is a good way to date them in relation to one another. I mean, the the synoptic gospels I'm talking about, because John's gospel is, of course, a whole nother mare's nest when it comes to that. I mean, I would say the same for that line at the end of Matthew, where it says, go out and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, assuming that it's even original to the text. Again, those three names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were already part of Mark's intellectual world. So we need not assume that two decades had to lapse after Mark was written for an idea like this to appear. But now let's address the theologians who put Mark before 70, which I hate to say it, but they actually have much stronger arguments than those who put Matthew at 75 or 85. I mean, the 75 or 85 seems completely arbitrary to me. But we said that those who put Matthew early point to the fact that it sometimes behaves as if the temple is still standing in the author's time. Well, there's a book called The Memory of the Temple and the Making of the Rabbis by Naftali Kohn. He points out that there are many instances in the late 2nd century Mishnah where the temple rituals are referred to in the present tense. And indeed, a good part of the Mishnah is dedicated to clarifying the proper way to perform the temple rituals. I mean, Were these rabbis unaware that the temple had been destroyed? I mean, obviously not. But Cohn's book explores the possible reasons why the rabbis treated the temple this way. And he then says that the Mishnaic writing about the temple parallels 
the temple discourses of other groups, of which he includes Christians. And he says, quote, Much like other groups, the rabbis created the temple in their own image, in a way that justified their self-definition, their vision for Judean society, their ritual practices, and their authority. End quote. Well, shit. That happens to be exactly what Matthew is doing, which is not a surprise, because part of his goal is to counter the rabbis. And when he has Jesus say, you know, hey, leave your sacrifice on the altar and go be reconciled with your brother, it's really just a half-assed version of what the rabbis of the time were already saying. Now, the theologians who put Matthew early also insist that Jesus' end-time speech is not a prediction of the temple's destruction as such, but is instead modeled on Old Testament passages. I kind of agree with that, but if you don't believe that Matthew knows about the end of the First Roman Jewish War, you then have to explain why, in Matthew's parable of the Great Supper, he has Jesus imply that the Jews were defeated in a war and then punished. And these theologians who put Matthew early have had trouble with that. Some of them even try to claim that that sentence is secondary to the text. You know, it's like it's okay when they say that, but when we say that, it's not scholarly. We're not being scholarly. Whatever. And they also say that the temple tax story, Peter laying the smack down on a fish, stealing its coin, also implies that the temple is still standing because the didrachma contribution helped maintain the temple. Now, that is true in a sense, but after the Roman-Jewish War, the Romans essentially converted it into a punitive tax and made it mandatory, and so the author is most likely talking about that later tax in this story. They also talked about the author appearing to be Torah-observant, and not only that, they pointed out that there's a controversy in Matthew's Gospel over the admission of Gentiles to the Christian Church. So Matthew comes, in their mind, from a more Jewish incarnation of Christianity, therefore has to be early. Well. The mainstream church wouldn't fully define itself when it came to Torah observance until the middle of the second century, and even later, much later in some cases. But all these people, all these gospel writers, are identifying themselves with Judaism. And they follow the Torah as they understand it, which is a crucial point, because a rabbi of the time would take one look at this gospel and deliver the stone-cold stunner to whoever handed it to him. I mean, there is, in fact, a passage in the Talmud that makes fun of the Gospel of Matthew, which we'll talk about someday, but we know of Christian sects who very faithfully observe the Torah until into the third century. So Torah observance in and of itself doesn't suggest an early date. Now, as to whether Matthew is wishy-washy on the subject of Gentiles becoming Christians, the thing to remember about Matthew is that he's using sources from an earlier period of Christianity or proto-Christianity where this controversy was still a live one. And so, the missionaries of the proto-Christian sect were told to go only to the lost sheep of Israel. But by Matthew's time, that ship has sailed. I mean, we can theorize as to why he still left that line in, but throughout the rest of the gospel, it's quite clear that the author assumes that Gentiles are making up part of the congregation, maybe even a large part. So these short few indications of Jewish particularism are really just artifacts of an earlier stratum within the movement. And these theologians who put Matthew early also point to the statement that the potter's field, where Judas was buried, is called the field of blood to this day. I have a confession to make. I don't think I fully understand this argument, strictly speaking. It comes from a commentary by the theologian Edmund Hebert. And he said that such a facility, this burial field, 
wouldn't have been used after 70 AD, and therefore its name wouldn't have still been notorious in the second century. Two things. One, Matthew says it's known as the field of blood to this day. To what day? And that's first of all. Second of all, I explained in a previous show that I'm from a town called Tom's River. Well, Tom was the first person to breed corgis in the United States. He invented the rolled cigarette, although he used tree leaves instead of tobacco. And he was drowned in a river by his pet hippopotamus, whom he'd rescued and raised from infancy, but it inexplicably turned on him one day because, you know, it's it's still a wild animal. You know, therefore, the town is called Tom's River to this day. You know, see what I did there? That was all made up. Now, furthermore, Israel was not nuked by the Romans in the war. In fact, there's some reason to believe that Jerusalem wasn't even fully abandoned in the decades after the siege. And so people still lived in this region. And I think this field of blood argument is a bit of a slender thread. So we've spent a bit of time on the theologians here. And when we come back, we'll look at even more evidence that Matthew was written late. Back after this. So we've responded somewhat to the claims of the theologians, but just like last time, I want to now present some more evidence that Matthew was written late. And we again turn to the observations of J.V.M. Sturdy and amplify and add to them. We're also going to share some observations in a similar vein from the theologian Benjamin Bacon, who was one of the great experts on Matthew. But we said that J.V.M. Sturdy put the Gospel of Mark at around 80 AD, which I really didn't like, but... His date for Matthew, in fact, matches my own. He puts Matthew at 130 AD. And of course, we followed his approach on Matthew in general, that it's a revisionist anti-gospel of Mark. Uh, He points out some legendary and editorial elements in Matthew that suggest not only that it wasn't written by an eyewitness, but also that it's too late to even be second generation. And for that, we can look at things like Jesus being treated by the author as a mythical hero, specifically as the new Moses. You know, not only is Matthew divided into five sets of discourses that mimic the five-fold arrangement of the Torah, but the early life of Jesus parallels that of Moses, as seen not only through the book of Exodus, but also through Jewish traditions about Moses from the early second century. Like Moses, there is a prophecy about Jesus' birth. Like Moses, a king massacres children to try to head off the prophecy. The father is distraught over the fact of his wife being pregnant, just like in the case of Moses. And just like in the case of Moses, he asks God for help and is comforted by a vision. Jesus comes out of Egypt like Moses. He fasts for 40 days and nights like Moses. And like Moses, he delivers an authoritative law. In Matthew's understanding, Jesus is a nebulous entity who appeared on earth at some time in the past. He is merely a vehicle or mouthpiece for the program of Matthew's own community. That's all Matthew knows about Jesus, that and what he can read in Mark. Therefore, he feels free to use this legendary material to structure and mold Jesus along tropic lines. What about Matthew indicating that false Christian prophets have appeared by his time? 
What about Matthew reverencing the apostles and showing respect for them as an institution? Something that only makes sense if there was a body of clergy that traced its roots to those legendary apostles, which again, something that suggests a late date. What about Matthew's gospel presupposing that all men will hate the Christians? Implies a time in which Christianity had spread far and wide. We can also talk about things like Matthew's Jesus telling the random crowd in the Sermon on the Mount, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Sir, who the hell are you talking to? A comment like this only makes sense when directed to a Christian community, or really directed from a head clergyman to other clergy. Now, the author of Matthew seems to be aware of this anachronism, and so he specifies that the Sermon on the Mount was technically addressed to Jesus' disciples, which would enable comments like these to make better sense. But when he says that Jesus was delivering the sermon to his disciples, he's clearly mucking around with his source, which says that a great crowd gathered to hear him. Another thing, we spoke in episode 9 about the so-called John the Baptist parking lot in the Gospel of Matthew where the author sticks all his John the Baptist quotes side by side, as if Jesus one day had just decided to go on a disjointed rant about John the Baptist. In this John the Baptist parking lot, Matthew has Jesus say something that wasn't in his source. He says, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. And this reflects later Christian arguments about what role John was specifically supposed to play, which Matthew is trying to clarify here. And we can talk about Matthew's editorial additions to the Passion Narrative. He gives the name of the high priest, which he most likely took from a Josephus book. When Jesus tells the disciples that one of them will betray him, Matthew has Judas ask, Is it me, Rabbi? Matthew clearly has a low opinion of his readership. He thinks that we're morons. Matthew has Jesus tell one of his followers to put his sword away after he cuts off the ear of the high priest. And this is really an important addition by Matthew because He's trying to forestall questions from the congregation like, why didn't the disciples just fight back against those who arrested Jesus? And unlike Mark, Matthew tells us why. Jesus gave him a ceasefire. So this here is an editorial edition that comes out of a context of someone reflecting on the contents of an existing book, you know, not remembering the events and traditions that occurred in a life. You know, and the same thing goes for Matthew's legend about the death of Judas His statement that Pilate's wife urged her husband to set Jesus free, Uh, Pilate washing his hands, his blood be on us and our children, you know, and that whole monster mash scene with the bodies of the saints rising from the dead after Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, this is the type of material that Mel Gibson was able to put to use in that damn movie. But one reason that it translated so easily to film was that it was originally an artistic creation, literary creation by an author. And lastly, we can talk about how the priest and the Pharisees ask Pilate to set a watch on Jesus' tomb so that none of his disciples can steal the body, claim that he rose from the dead. And then later, when Jesus does rise from the dead, the priests bribe the guards to claim that the disciples stole the body and, quote, this story was widely spread among the Jews to this day, end quote. First of all, to what day? But I mean, come on. Practically every word of that story is an anachronism, and it should be glaringly obvious as to why Matthew created the story. But again, this all indicates a period of considerable time between the 30s and the 40s AD and the time of actual writing. A lot of water had to pass under a lot of bridges for statements like these to show up in this book. And I want to emphasize, 
that the scholars who have singled out these stories in the past and talk about how they indicate a late day for Matthew, they of course usually assume that there was a historical Jesus and that some form of the passion narrative happened in real history sometime in the 30s. I don't believe that, but I still say that these elements of Matthew's gospel indicate a vast lapse of time from the purported events because the early first century is being treated as a kind of canvas by the author. You know, he's Harold in the purple crayon. He doesn't know anything about that era or what happened. All he knows is Mark and Hugh. But he tries to create the impression that he's writing in the first century. And with these clumsy legends and these editorial comments, he's showing that he doesn't truly have the kind of link to that time that he would need in order to write a convincing narrative. Now, lastly, we have to talk about the title. Why according to Matthew? In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, Jesus calls the tax collector from his booth to follow him and become a disciple. The name of the man he called is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. However, literally a few lines later, Mark gives the list of the 12 disciples in full. And the list he gives is Simon, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, another James, another Simon, and Judas. Levi is absent from his list. And this is also the case in Luke's gospel, which copied Mark. They both have Levi as the name of the tax collector in the story, and they're both missing Levi from the list of the 12. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew is given as the name of the tax collector in the story, and in the list of the 12, uniquely among the synoptic gospels, the clause, the tax collector, is added after Matthew's name. But it seems most likely that this name change in the tax collector story was just another example of Matthew's editing of Mark. He noticed the discrepancy in Mark. Jesus had called a disciple in an earlier passage, and he saw that that disciple's name was for some reason not included in Mark's actual full list of the disciples that he gave later. The mere fact that this bit of editing was done in this gospel and not the others distinguishes it from them in a very important way because it touches on the name of a figure from the earliest days of Christianity. And the authentic information about people and events from that early period were so sparse, non-existent, in fact, and this was even recognized from the beginning. So at that time, if you're reading the Synoptic Gospels and you notice that in only one of them, a change is made to one of the names of the people from that early period, even if you don't know the reason for the change, it's going to pique your interest. And this name change has long been recognized as perhaps holding the key as to how this book got its title. What do fundamentalists think about the title? Well, books say the thing, Matthew wrote Matthew, title says it, I believe it, that settles it. How do they explain Mark calling the tax collector Levi? Well, usually they say that Levi and Matthew are two names for the same person. And maybe Jesus bestowed upon Levi the name of Matthew when he called him from the booth. Well, that's very cute, but Jews were not known to have two Semitic names at once. Unless they're implying that the second name was a kind of a code name, which is always risky in these kind of movements, because you get 12 guys fighting over who gets to be Mr. Black, but they don't know each other, so no one wants to back down. Mainstream scholars have speculated that the title could be a play on words for matetes, or disciple. That's possible. It's also possible that the book was written or published by someone named Matthew, just some random fool whom we otherwise know nothing about. That's possible. There were various heretical groups in the late 2nd century that traced their origin back to a supposed follower of Jesus named Matthias, 
which is closely related to the name Matthew. In fact, it means the same thing. The relationship between these two names in Greek is basically like Christina with the H versus Christina without the H. Now, there is someone in Acts of the Apostles named Matthias. He's the guy who's picked to replace Judas. He's a scab, basically. I actually think that Acts of the Apostles added this story of the selection of Matthias to counter the heretics who were deriving their lineage from a man of this name. And the Acts author was trying to show that Matthias was actually just another company man, another run-of-the-mill apostle who taught all the approved stuff. Now, who would the historical Matthias have been in that scenario, from whom the heretics were drawing these traditions that the Acts story was trying to counter? It really doesn't matter. I mean, probably a legendary prophet, possibly the name that they assign to a collection of writings. Because the thing is that religions, or especially small sects, when they're being formed, they do not create their backstory first. It's often when they're years or decades in that they now have to go back and clean up their early history, you know, dress it up in a tuxedo like Principal Skinner did with Bart Simpson in that game. The point is, some heretics claim to get their teaching from Matthias. Ascribing this gospel to Matthew could have been an end run around them. You know, like, this is actually what the real Matthew taught. But I have to say that with the title of Matthew, it looks again like the early church is up to its old tricks. They inherit this anonymous gospel, want to place it in the collection, and they notice this strange bit with the name of the tax collector being changed. Now, rather than conjure up some pseudo-explanation to deal with it, they just assign it the name Matthew, with the logic being that the change of the name had to be significant in some way. Maybe it could be presented as an autobiographical wink by the author. My own theory on Matthew's title is rather prosaic. I believe that a scribe who might have been tasked with helping compile the New Testament was sifting through these anonymous gospels, and he may have made some kind of notation on his copy highlighting the name Matthew, meaning the name change in this tax collector story was a glaring problem because he noticed that it wasn't in Mark and Luke, and he may have wrote some kind of note to address it later. Then some other numbnuts comes along and assumes that that notation was meant to be the title of the book as a whole. The point is that one way or another, the early church was using that detective method that David Trobish talked about that we discussed in episode 17. They saw something strange in this tax collector story and they took advantage of it, making it out to where that could be leveraged to present this book as being from an eyewitness. Now, there's a statement in Matthew's gospel that's often taken as autobiographical by the author. It's Matthew 13, 52, where he says, Every scribe who's become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And I also think that this is not only a wink and a nod by the author, but also a statement as to his overall method in writing. Because where he says this, is right after a long chain of parables that occur nowhere else but in this gospel. And so he's effectively saying with this scribe quote, like, hi, I'm the author of this gospel, and while you can clearly see that I use sources, I also clearly made up a bunch of shit, but that's okay, because I'm like the ruler of a household. I got all kinds of things in my cupboard that I can bring out, both new and old. You know, it's this verbal judo that he's trying to do so that, you know, you don't object too much to the fact that he's putting unforeseen parables into the mouth of Jesus. And why was Matthew placed first in the New Testament collection? Well, it has little to do with the fact that it was perceived as the most ancient. 
Rather, the mainstream church chose to lead with this book because this book contains its core beliefs, not the least of which is the continuity between Jesus and the Jewish scriptures. If you were holding the first edition of the New Testament, you would have just finished reading the last of the minor prophets before you got to the title page of Matthew. And Matthew begins with a genealogy looking back through Old Testament figures. And in his picture of the birth of Jesus, he begins laying down that indirect fire of those Old Testament prophecy fulfillments, and he never lets up. The fact is that the mainstream church was proud of this book, and perhaps rightly so. You know, the other books that come from the early Catholics, you know, things like 1 Peter and James, and even 1 Clement, things like Revelation, they're scattershot, uneven compositions. Whereas Matthew is the closest thing the mainstream church had to being a treatise and an epitome of its beliefs. And we remember the quote from the great scholar Benjamin Bacon that for them, Matthew was the gospel, unless the specific quote wanting was not found in it. This is the preferred entree for the reader into the New Testament system, this new product of the late second century. Today, we've gone over the arguments of the fundamentalists and the mainstreamers on the dating and authorship of Matthew and commented on them, and I think we gave some indication of what a sparse foundation these arguments are built on. We continue with our Bright in the Corners mini-series, and why don't we commence next time with the Gospel of Luke? We asked at the outset whether we're able to trust the traditional methods of dating the Gospel of Matthew, and the answer is... Not just no, it's all hell no. And in the name of St. Candida of the Knife, we declare the theologians to be wanting. Thank you for listening. This criticism is ended. Go in peace. What other stories of mythology do you think of as historical reality? <laughs> <laughs>